Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We had uh, a few conflicting uh, things happening at 10 o'clock, and so we start at 10.10 to make sure our ranking member could be with us. Um, we have two very distinguished guests with us today from the state of South Carolina, Senator Lindsey Graham, Senator Tim Scott. Uh, the way uh, the order is going to work today, um, they will be introducing our, our outstanding nominee. Um, they're going to say some brief comments. We're going to make some opening comments. As is the norm, I won't uh, question it first. I'll save my time for interjections, and we'll move directly to Senator Cardin. Uh, but we welcome our nominee. We welcome our distinguished friends. And with that, uh, Lindsay, if you want to lead off, we'd love to hear from you. It's well, a, thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's a great honor to have you here in our committee. Well, thank you. Uh, you're probably the only one who would say that. So I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a hard enough time staying on the committees that I'm actually assigned to, so I may drop by more often. Uh, John McCain would be real pleased to see me drop by here more often. Uh, you're going to hear a personal story that I think is uniquely American. So as Nikki begins to explain who she is, where she come from, and how she got the job she's got, I think you're going to be really proud of our country. And I will not get in the way of that story other than to say it is one of the most compelling stories in American politics, and all of us in South Carolina are proud. As to the UN, I consider myself an internationalist. The chairman has been working on trying to deal with modern slavery. I think the UN is a body that can do a lot of good, but needs to be reformed. <clears throat> Most Americans are losing trust in the body. 20 resolutions against Israel and six against the world at large is probably a body that needs to refocus on the world as it really is. I think Governor Haley will talk about her desire to stand up more forcefully for Israel. And uh, I think it's time for America to stand up more forcefully for Israel in the UN. She'll talk about reform. I'm the chairman of the Foreign Operations Subcommittee on Appropriations with Senator Lee. We're in charge of the UN's budget, the State Department's budget. And let me tell you a little bit about the body. PEDFAR and other programs that the UN administers have saved millions of lives. Uh, the new Secretary General had a long talk with him a couple of days ago, really encouraged by his vision for the United Nations. He was in charge of refugee programs throughout the world, so he understands the body. He's been out in the field, yeah. and I think Nikki Haley and the new uh, Secretary General will form a partnership that will reform a body that's long overdue, and the first thing out of the new Secretary General's mouth was, I intend to reform this body to make you more proud of the way it functions. In that regard, he'll have a good partner in Governor Haley. She's been the governor of our state some of the most difficult times you could imagine. A thousand-year flood, the massacre of nine people in a church in Charleston. She's handled some of the most difficult experiences in modern South Carolina with grace, poise, determination, and dignity. Trust me, it has been a tough year or so for South Carolina, and Governor Haley has brought us together and gotten us to places we should have been a long time ago. I think that skill set is exactly what the U.S. Ambassador of the United Nations needs. You can learn the details of foreign policy, but you either have the ability to persuade people, you have the ability to uh, transform organizations, or you don't. And I've seen her persuade people who have dug in for literally centuries about now's the time to move the Confederate flag. I've seen her bring international business concerns to our state 
by engaging in a fashion to convince them that of all the places you could do business in the world, South Carolina is where you need to be. Bottom line, America's voice in the United Nations needs to be strong. It needs to be somebody that can bring people together. It needs to be a voice that understands what America is all about. I think Nikki Haley, our governor in South Carolina, is the right person at the right time. She represents a combination of intellect, determination, grace, and an understanding of America that the world needs to hear. I know that if she is the ambassador for our country, the United Nations, the United Nations will be better off and our country will be in good hands. Thank you so much. Um, now we'll turn to Senator Scott, who in his very brief amount of time here has brought uh, great consciousness, I think, to our body and clarity. We thank him for his service, his unique perspective on so many issues that we deal with, and we look forward to your comments. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, members of the committee. It certainly is a pleasure for me to be here introducing not only my governor, but my friend who I've gotten to know over many years. And her story really is the epitome of the American dream coming to life. Her parents migrated from India to Canada and then to rural South Carolina back in 1969. Her father, brilliant man, college professor. Her mother, an entrepreneur, started a clothing boutique store where Nikki figured out how to work. Thank her mom for that today. According to my staff, and this is perhaps the most important part of my introduction, she attended a school in upstate South Carolina that in 2015 was the number two football team in the country, Cory Booker. Uh, this year, they were the number one team. Uh, they also are known as the Clemson Tigers, and her daughter is a student at Clemson as well. She learned how to get along with folks. She learned how to study. She learned how to be a student of the things that mattered in life. And over time, that transcended everything that she did. I met Nikki back when I started serving in the South Carolina House of Representatives in 2009. She had already been there. She served three terms in the South Carolina House of Representatives. Uh, before she was in the House, uh, she led the local Chamber of Commerce, becoming the president the National Association of Women Business Owners and was elected in 2004 to the South Carolina House. I was able to see firsthand the way she embodied the American values in her leadership, something that we all have grown to love and appreciate about her. In 2010, she became the first female governor of South Carolina and only the second, second in the nation, Indian American governor in our nation. Under Governor Haley's leadership, South Carolina's unemployment rate hit a 15-year record low. New jobs in every single county in South Carolina, representing the greatest names in industry, from the Boeings of the world to expansions of the BMWs to the attraction of more investment from Michelin to Bridgestone, Nikki Haley, during her term, created over 82,000 jobs in South Carolina. Nikki is also a champion of transparency and accountability in government, two things that I and 
many of us hope to see more of at the United Nations. In 2015, as Lindsay has already mentioned, during some of the darkest hours our state has ever known, the Mother Emanuel Massacre, Nikki Haley led not only as a governor, not only as a strong leader, but as a mother, as a human being that was impacted by such an atrocity. She led our state to come together with those types of leadership skills, bringing people together under the worst of times, under the most difficult conditions, is something that she specializes in. The United Nations will be better because Nikki Haley will be a part of it. Thank you, Mr. Yeah. Chairman. Thank you both. I know that you have other business and you're welcome to uh, go deal with that business, but we thank you for being here. And uh, again, Governor Haley, we thank you for putting yourself forward. We look forward to your comments in just a moment. Thank you. Um, the, United, the United Nations Security Council. The uh, United Nations Security Council was created after World War II to create stability uh, and to maintain security in the world. And yet, as we look around the world today, it's failing uh, in its cause of peace and security. We can only look to Syria, where over a half a million people have been slaughtered, uh, people have been tortured, chemical weapons have been used against people, and yet the United Nations Security Council has been able to, unable to do anything to counter what has happened there. Russia has remade the map by invading Georgia in 2008, again in Ukraine, and yet the United Nations has been unable uh, to deal with that issue. China is violating all kinds of international norms in the South China Sea, and yet the United Nations Security Council is unable to do, deal with that issue. As a matter of fact, the United Nations Security Council has been unable to deal with the issues that is agreed upon, its own resolutions, whether it's North Korea and the violations that are taking place and the half-hearted efforts uh, that have taken place by members to, to really push uh, and enforce strong sanctions. In Iran, we have the same issue where an agreement uh, has been reached, and yet uh, Iran continues to violate, especially on ballistic missiles, something that, again, the United Nations Security Council had agreed to. And what it's done instead is continue to pursue anti-Semitic measures. The Permanent Five have two members that actually are causing the world to be less stable, and that is Russia and China. So we've got a, a built-in issue here where any of those permanent five members can veto the actions of the rest and keep the United Nations from rightfully dealing with issues that need to be dealt with. As a matter of fact, the gap between the, what the United Nations was meant to be and what it's become has never been wider at this moment in time. The U.S. is the largest contributor, 22% uh, of the normal dues. We pay 29% of the peacekeeping dues or participation. We also give billions of dollars to other organizations that are affiliated. And yet we see in the peacekeeping mission um, violations of sexual, sexual exploitation and abuse. And yet, again, it seems no real action. And yet I believe the United Nations can and should play an important role. I believe it 
is and can play an important role in conflict areas and delivering humanitarian aid. But I think we're at a pivotal point, and that's why I'm excited that our nominee is here today. Um, while our former Secretary General, to me in many cases, uh, for me it was hard to determine if he even had a pulse uh, when, when big issues were being dealt with by the world, um, I will say the new UN Secretary General Guterres seems to me to be somebody that really wants the United Nations to do what it was intended to do. I had several very strong conversations with him over the last several days as the United Nations was dealing with some current business. And I have a feeling you're going to have a much better partner um, when confirmed to this position. Um, we, uh, I know that uh, Governor Haley is a fierce advocate for U.S. interests. All of us who've met with her in our offices have seen that. Um, I really do believe that she is a person that uh, knows that the United Nations needs tremendous reform and change. And I really believe that we have a right to demand that as the largest contributor, uh, as the greatest country on earth. I think that our nominee will, in fact, demand that, and I think we'll, we'll in fact, see very positive changes when she's confirmed. And with that, um, I turn it over to our distinguished ranking member and my friend, Ben Cardin. Well, Chairman Corker, uh, thank you for the manner in which uh, this hearing has been uh, arranged. Uh, thank you very much for all the courtesies that you have shown. Governor Haley, thank you. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my it's, pleasure. Thank you. It's a difficult time to serve in government, and it's a very difficult time to serve at the United Nations and serve on uh, a critically important position for our national security and our global affairs. So we thank you for being willing to step forward to serve your country. I, I want to thank your husband and son who are here because this is going to be a family sacrifice. So you're going to have to share your, your mother and your wife with our country and with the global community, and we thank you for being willing to do that. Uh, uh, Chairman Corker, you're correct. In the meeting I had with Governor Haley, it was most impressive uh, to see uh, Governor Haley's uh, passion for U.S. values and her, uh, her statements as to how she sees uh, the role at the United Nations, I found very encouraging. So I thank you very much for, for that opportunity. International institutions like the United Nations are under tremendous stress as the entire liberal international order of the last seven decades. The United Nations plays a vital role in the maintenance of the current international order, which has served the United States well since 1945. As Ronald Reagan said, we must, in his own words, determine that the UN should succeed and serve the cause of peace for humankind, for the stakes are high. I couldn't agree more with our former president. So we will need a strong, principled voice at the United Nations who is committed to reforming and strengthening it. I firmly believe in a world where America works with our allies and partners, a world that is governed by just laws and institutions, a world where we champion our values, both at home and abroad. And in many ways, the United Nations is the premier international forum to engage in such activities. Much will be said about your experience today. And I am concerned, I must say, about your lack of foreign policy experience. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go through this hearing. One area where I was particularly impressed with your leadership was when you publicly called for the removal of the Confederate flag from South Carolina State Capitol, an effort that was ultimately successful. 
Your actions not only demonstrated your willingness to address hate and bigotry, but also your ability to build and work with coalitions, which will be critically important if confirmed to be our United Nations ambassador. It is my hope that your shrewd political sens sensibility, history of coalition and consensus building, and desire to undertake new challenges will help you in the early weeks and months of your tenure, uh, should you be confirmed. If confirmed, you will lead the fight for American values at the United Nations by standing up against violations of international human humanitarian laws, against war crimes, against human rights violations, and against crackdowns on democracy and freedom of speech. You will face complex challenges like today's global humanitarian crisis. People are fleeing their homes on a scale not seen since World War II, all at a time when climate change, food insecurity, and water scarcities are increasing tensions and instability across the globe. These are challenges that cut across borders that the United States alone cannot meet. The United Nations is uniquely placed to address these problems, and we must engage it robustly to advance America's interests. The United Nations and the global community needs U.S. leadership promoting our core values. The United Nations' failings are well known Less known is what it gets right, vaccinating 40% of the world's children, assisting more than 55 million refugees fleeing war, famine, and human rights abuses, providing food to 90 million people in 80 countries, and maternal health work that has saved the lives of 30 million women. Many of us have traveled around the world, and we've seen the faces of people who are here today and families that are here today that would not have been but for the work of the United Nations. The United Nations has also launched the Sustainable Development Goals, which, if fully embraced, could have a powerful impact globally on reducing human rights abuses, poverty, and poor governance, in addition to reaching important benchmarks in women and children's health, economic development, and education. I was particularly proud to promote the U.S. leadership on goal number 16, which is special and unprecedented international commitment to improving governance and reducing corruption, which are critically important to U.S. national security interests. The SDGs, as they are known, are extraordinary and ambitious goals that can be achieved in concert with American diplomatic and de development efforts. They represent among the best of what the United Nations can do as a convening power. Another dimension of that convening power is the U United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. For 25 years, the nations of the world have come together to try to tackle the most existential of threats to humanity, climate change. There has been substantial attention paid to the Paris Accords, and rightly so. But Governor Haley, I want to know your thoughts about America's larger role in climate diplomacy leadership around the world. The United Nations can and must be more effective in dealing with challenges affecting the world order. U.S. leadership is essential. I don't believe we strengthen the United Nations by enacting across-the-board funding cuts to the United Nations. And yet, I do believe we can all agree that the United Nations must do better in many areas. For it to achieve its full potential, it must change. So let me share with you some areas where I hope we can work to reform and change the way the United Nations does its business. First, the United Nations must be fair. One of the persistent weaknesses across the UN system has been its biased and ugly approach to issues related to Israel. This must end. The responsibility for doing so starts with the member states 
and our ambassador, if confirmed, with your voice. The United States must continue to use its voice and its vote to call out and push back against resolutions and other actions that aim to isolate Israel, our unique ally in the Middle East. I remained deeply disappointed by the UN Security Council's passage of a blatantly one-sided resolution this December. And it's absolutely unacceptable, though telling, that the attendees at that session applauded after Resolution 2334's passage, underscoring the isolation and bias against Israel. Second, Russia's cynical obstructionism in the United Nations Security Council must be addressed. I agree completely with Senator Corker. The war in Syria has resulted in more than 400,000 deaths and the displacement of millions. Russia has vetoed six UN Security Council resolutions that could have reduced the violence, further expo exposing the vulnerability of the international system to Russia's aggression. Atrocities committed in Syria amount to war crimes, and those responsible must be held accountable. That's our role in the international community to make sure that, in fact, takes place. Third, UN peacekeeping must be strengthened. United Nations peacekeepers de deployed to conflicts around the world, and as a result, the United States doesn't have to do it alone. US peace UN peacekeepers help end war, protect civilian populations, and secure territory. But troop quality and effectiveness must be increased, and the United Nations must aggressively address sexual exploitation and abuse by UN peacekeepers. No other issue has so profoundly eroded the trust of local populations or the confidence of the international community. Fourth, the United Nations must reform its internal management through simplification, flexibility, and decentralization. It must focus more on quality and less on process and, and on people rather than bureaucracy. It must be committed to building a culture of accountability and protection of whistleblowers. I am confident that the U.S. has a strong partner in reform with the new Secretary General. I agree again with Chairman Corker. I think the Secretary General Gutierrez uh, presents a, a strong leader who, who takes this position with a stronger background than any previous Secretary General of the United Nations. He led the UN Refugee Agency. I urge you to work closely with the new Secretary General uh, in accomplishing the purposes that we, uh, that we need to, to accomplish. Finally, we must shore up the UN humanitarian response system, which is under extraordinary stress. Brutal conflicts and violent extremism are devastating the lives of millions of people, but the international assistance being provided is not keeping up with the need and scale of the problem. South Sudan is a tragic example of the struggles in the UN and the international systems faced with corrupt, entrenched leaders put their interests and lives ahead of the people with devastating results. Tens of thousands are dead, millions are being displaced, are hungry and vulnerable. The Security Council members must resolve to use the UN as a platform and a voice to speak up for the people whose voices often go unheard, as well as those working hard on the front line. We must do so not merely because it's the right thing to do. The United States has a profound moral obligation to lead on these issues, but also because it is squarely in our national interest to do this. The United States is better served when we address these issues through the United Nations than to face it alone. For all of its shortcoming, and more importantly, for all the unsung good that it does, it's almost impossible to imagine a world without the UN. For 70 years, it's where the world has come together to reaffirm norms and values and work through the most pressing shared challenges facing humanity. Our national security is strengthened when we are at the table at the United Nations, and the United Nations is more effective when American leadership and values are on display. 
In a time where the world is in turmoil, it is interest of the American people from the United States to support and maintain cultural alliances and institutions that create stability are more important today than ever before. We've already seen that instability and unrest being, bringing a crisis to our own doors. In addition to the United Nations, there should be little debate about the essential role of the Euro-Atlantic institutions in maintaining peace and security in Europe and elsewhere since the end of World War II. In the 20th century, Europe has been divided by wars and rivalries. Today, Europe faces its challenges, but the progress in creating a stable and free Europe through such institutions as NATO, the EU, and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe has contributed immeasurably to European peace, stability, and prosperity, and to the American strength, well-being, and leadership in the world as well. The vitality and endurance of these institutions serve the interests of the United States. So let me just uh, mention one last point. I was particularly disturbed by President-elect Trump's comments over the weekend about NATO as being obsolete, repeating a statement he had made earlier. Vladimir Putin wishes it were, but it's not. So I'm anxious to hear your views, Governor Haley, on NATO, on the importance of our alliances. We need to be reassuring our allies, not threatening to abandon them. With a strong and sustained U.S. leadership, the United Nations will continue to be the indispensable force for a better world. America's ambassador to the U.N. is essential to that effort. Governor Haley, I look forward to hearing from you today and learning more about your vision as to how the United Nations uh, can better serve the international community. Thank well, thank you, Senator Cardin. As I listen to um, your analysis of the United Nations, much of which I agree to, I, I know that uh, being the United Nations ambassador is really more about reform and causing something that is dysfunctional to function. And in many ways, having a governor, uh, a governor with your energies, uh, could well be, again, a very, a very inspired choice. I know you have a number of family members here. I've noticed members always treat nominees with much greater kindness when their family members are with them. If you would like to introduce them, you're welcome to do so. We look forward to your opening comments and questions. Again, thank you for being willing to serve in this capacity. Right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Senator Cardin, for your comments. And I certainly look forward to discussing all of those things with you and the rest of the committee. I do have my family behind me because I've never been able to do anything without the support of my family. And so to my left, I have my favorite younger brother, Gogi Rendawa, who owns his own um, business and is an entrepreneur. I have my parents, Dr. and Mrs. Rendawa, who reminded my brothers, my sister, and me every day how blessed we were to live in this country. <coughs> I have my amazing husband, but also the coolest first man ever, um, but he is also a combat veteran. Michael is behind me, and next to him is um, one of my pride and joy um, kids, and that's Naylan, who is wearing a suit today, which he would prefer not wearing, but he does have his basketball shoes on. So. Um, <laughs> I pick and choose my battles as a mom. I have my in-laws, Bill and Carol Haley, who have been um, an amazing support to me and a second set of parents to us as we've gone through struggles. And then I have my favorite older brother, um, Mitty Rendell, who's also a combat veteran, and his wife, Sonia. And then I have lots of friends um, behind them as well. Um, and so I told them if I started to mess up, one of them needed to act like a protester. So we will see uh, if, that, uh, if that happens. Um, I think she's going to do very well at the United Nations. <laughs> 
So with that, I would like to say Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee, I come before you today both humbled and honored to be considered to represent the United States of America at the United Nations. Just as other nominees for this position have done, I am here to outline my vision and discuss my qualifications. My story is an American story. I was born in Bamberg, South Carolina, the daughter of immigrant parents from Punjab, India. My parents had comfortable lives in India, but they chose to give up those comforts and move to America with just $8 in their pockets because of the freedoms and the opportunities this country offers. Our family's experience is unique, but it is also familiar because it is one that has been repeated many times by many people in American history. Growing up in a small rural community in the South, our family was different. We were not white enough to be white. We were not black enough to be black. My father wore a turban. My mother wore a sari. Our new neighbors didn't quite know what to make of us. So we did face challenges, but those challenges paled next to the abundance of opportunities in front of us. My dad was a professor at a small historically black college. My mom was a social studies teacher and started a clothing store from scratch. I started doing the books for the family business when I was 13. It wasn't until I got to college that I realized that wasn't normal. But it was normal to me. In my family, we worked. I was also privileged to take advantage of the educational opportunities that America affords. And I am painfully aware that the chance for 13-year-old girls to read and learn and grow is something that does not exist in far too many places around the world today. I went on to serve in South Carolina General Assembly and to be elected and re-elected governor of the Palmetto State. Serving the people of South Carolina has been the greatest honor of my life. During the six years of my governorship, our state has faced many challenges, but South Carolina today is stronger economically and more united culturally than it has ever been before, and I couldn't be more proud. While South Carolina will always be my home, I am eager to begin this new chapter. International diplomacy is a new area for me. There is much I am learning about the intricacies of the UN and its associated agencies. I don't claim that I know everything or that leadership at the UN is the same as leading South Carolina. But diplomacy itself is not new to me. In fact, I would suggest there is nothing more important to a governor's success than her ability to unite those with different backgrounds, viewpoints, and objectives behind a common purpose. For six years, that has been my work, day after day, in times of celebration and in times of great tragedy. I have negotiated deals with some of the largest corporations in the world and convinced them to make South Carolina their home. I have been the chief executive of a government with more than 67,000 employees and an annual budget of more than 26 billion. And we have achieved real results. South Carolina is a different, stronger, better place than it was six years ago. Like most government agencies, the United Nations could benefit from a fresh set of eyes. I will take an outsider's look at the institution. As I have in every challenge in my life, I will come to the UN to work and to work smart. 
I will bring a firm message to the UN that US leadership is essential to the world. It is essential for the advancement of humanitarian goals and for the advancement of America's national interests. When America fails to lead, the world becomes a dangerous place. And when the world becomes more dangerous, the American people become more vulnerable. At the UN, as elsewhere, the United States is the indispensable voice of freedom. It is time that we once again find that voice. The job of UN ambassador is different from being governor, but there is one essential element of leadership that is the same, and that is accountability. A leader must be accountable to the people she serves. Should you confirm me as ambassador, I will be accountable, first and foremost, to the people of the United States. Mr. Chairman, accountability means being honest with ourselves. As I appear before you today, when we look at the United Nations, we see a checkered history. The UN and its specialized agencies have had numerous successes. Its health and food programs have saved millions of lives. Its weapons monitoring efforts have provided us with vital security information. Its peacekeeping missions have, at times, performed valuable services. However, any honest assessment also finds an institution that is often at odds with the American national interests and American taxpayers. Nowhere has the UN's failure been more consistent and more outrageous than it is than its bias against our close ally, Israel. In the General Assembly session just completed, the UN adopted 20 resolutions against Israel and only six targeting the rest of the world's countries combined. In the past 10 years, the Human Rights Council has passed 62 resolutions condemning the reasonable actions Israel takes to defend its security. Meanwhile, the world's worst human rights abusers in Syria, Iran, and North Korea received far fewer condemnations. This cannot continue. It is in this context that the events of December 23rd were so damaging. Last month's passage of UN Resolution 2334 was a terrible mistake, making a peace agreement with the Israelis and the Palestinians even harder to achieve. The mistake was compounded by the location in which it took place, in light of the UN's long history of anti-Israel bias. I was the first governor in America to sign legislation combating the anti-Israel boycott, divest, and sanctions, or the BDS movement. I will not go to New York and abstain when the UN seeks to create an international environment that encourages boycotts of Israel. In fact, I pledge to you this. I will never abstain when the United Nations takes any action that comes in direct conflict with the interests and values of the United States. In the matter of human rights, Mr. Chairman, whether it's the love of my families and America's immigrant heritage, or the removal of a painful symbol of an oppressive past in South Carolina, I have a clear understanding that it is not acceptable to stay silent when our values are challenged. I will be a strong voice for American principles and American interests, even if that is not what other UN representatives want to hear. The time has come for American strength once again. 
there are other elements of accountability as well. As governor, the South Carolina Constitution required me to report annually to the people of my state on how their security and prosperity were being advanced by their government. In fact, I gave that State of the State address just one week ago. I was able to tell the citizens of South Carolina that we now invest more dollars in public education than ever before, that our reserves have doubled while our debt service has been cut in half, and more South Carolinians are working today than ever in the history of our state. Without fundamental changes at the UN, I cannot envision making the same kind of report to the American people as their ambassador. We contribute 22% of the UN's budget far more than any other country. We are a generous nation, but we must ask ourselves, what good is being accomplished by this disproportionate contribution? Are we getting what we pay for? To your credit, the Congress has already begun to explore ways the United States can use its leverage to make the United Nations a better investment for the American people. I applaud your efforts, and I look forward to working with you to bring seriously needed change to the UN. If I am confirmed, I will need you, and I hope to have your support. In short, Mr. Chairman, my goal for the United Nations will be to create an international body that better serves the interests of the American people. After the passage of the infamous UN resolution equating Zionism with racism in 1975, U.S. Ambassador Daniel Patrick Moynihan came to the unsettling realization that, as he put it, quote, if there were no General Assembly, this could never have happened. Today, over 40 years later, more and more Americans are becoming convinced by actions like the passage of Resolution 2334 that the United Nations does more harm than good. The American people see the U.N.'s mistreatment of Israel, its failure to prevent the North Korean nuclear threat, its waste and corruption, and they are fed up. My job, our job, is to reform the UN in ways that will rebuild the confidence of the American people. We must build an international institution that honors America's commitment to freedom, democracy, and human rights. I hope this can be done. I believe it is possible. And I know that if you confirm me, I will do all I can to see that that happens. Some say we live in cynical and distrustful times, but I believe we all carry in our hearts a bit of idealism that animated the cre creation of the United Nations. I know I do. With your blessing, I will represent our great country in this international forum. I will do it in ways that I hope bring honor to our country our values, and our national interests. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for those comments. Uh, we'll begin a, a seven-minute round, including answers from the nominee, and we'll start with Senator Cardin and go to Senator Johnson. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Governor Haley, um, first of all, thank you for your presentation. I, I find it very uh, encouraging, very refreshing. Uh, you have hit points that I strongly agree with. Uh, about being, when you say it's clear understanding that it's not acceptable to stay silent when our values are challenged. Um, you indicated that to me when, you, when we were together in my office. Uh, your point about America being the indispensable voice of freedom. Uh, so I'm very encouraged by your statement. So let me get specific, if I might, 
uh, and talk a little bit about Russia. Russia certainly has not been a voice for freedom uh, under President Putin. Uh, a free country has free and fair elections and doesn't interfere with other countries' free and fair elections. Russia has not only interfered with our elections, they're interfering with other elections, including in Europe. Uh, a country that believes in freedom does, allows civil societies to function, allows opposition a fair opportunity. Mr. Putin imprisons his opponents and kills them if, if, if need be. Uh, a free country does not uh, evade another country and take over territory. Uh, Russia has invaded not just Ukraine, but is in Georgia and Moldova and other countries. So my, my first question to you, speaking, when you say that you will, uh, that staying silent is not uh, an option, speak to me about Mr. Putin and Russia. Well, thank you, Senator Cardin, for that question. And I think that Russia is going to continue to be at the forefront of um, a lot of issues that we have to deal with. What I'll tell you is Russia is trying to show their muscle right now. It is what they do. And I think we always have to be cautious. I don't think that we can trust them. I think that we have to make sure that we try and see what we can get from them before we give to them. They certainly have done some terrible atrocities when you look at things in Syria and um, how they are working with Iran. And I think that we have to continue to be very strong back and show them what this new administration is going to be. And it is going to be an America that shows exactly where we stand, what we are for, what we are against, and how we're going to proceed. And I think that we need to let them know we are not okay with what happened in Ukraine and Crimea and what is happening in Syria. But we're also going to tell them that we do need their help with ISIS and with some other threats that we all share that we have to move forward. Does Russia have legitimacy in Crimea? I don't think that I think when what we saw with Crimea and Ukraine is a big concern because I think it is Russia trying to make sure that they are inserting themselves in places that they want to continue to insert themselves. The problem is there is no boundaries with Russia. They don't have boundaries. They consider that whatever they want, they will. It's the same thing with NATO. They don't want to see NATO become stronger or more powerful. But, but EU and and the United States have made it clear they will never recognize Russia's incursion into Crimea. Uh, do you agree that Russia, that Crimea is, is Ukraine, it's not Russia? I do, and I think that we have to make that very clear to them, and I think that's what we have to show is our disappointment in those things. And uh, to talk to me a little bit about, we have sanctions currently against Russia. We do. We've been able to get Europe to go along with those sanctions. Yeah. You agree that those sanctions should not be at all re uh, reduced or eliminated until Russia complies with the Minsk agreement? I think that Russia has to have positive actions before we lift any sanctions on Russia. Some of us have filed legislation to strengthen the sanction regime against Russia, giving additional tools, additional power to impose additional sanctions. Do you support additional sanctions if Russia does not change its behavior? I think that um, what I do believe is important is that we get together with the National Security Council and the President-elect, and we decide a plan for Russia, what we expect from them, what we plan on um, looking at as we go forward, what violations will trigger additional sanctions, and when we say it, we should do it and follow through with it. The Philippines have been uh, an ally of us for a long time. Under their current president, they have sanctioned extrajudicial killings. People have been killed that have not gone through court proceedings. 
uh, because of their uh, suspected of using drugs. Do you agree that that violates basic human rights? I'm sorry, I missed the first part of that question. The uh, President Duarte of the uh, Philippines has yes. sanctioned extrajudicial killings. Right. Does that violate basic human rights? It, is, it does, yes. And you're prepared to speak up about that in the United Nations? Yes, Nation? I am. I'm prepared to speak up on anything that goes against American values. And the American values is something that we should talk loudly about all the time to all countries because I think it's the values that we hold dear and it is at the core of what the United States American heart is all about. We have always been the moral compass of the world and we need to continue to, to act out um, and vocalize that as we go forward. I, I mentioned the Sustainable Development Goal 16, Good Governance. Uh, I've talked to you about expanding that so that the United States leadership in good governance fighting corruption we use the model that we've used in regards to fighting modern-day slavery and trafficking. Will you work with us and in your role in the United Nations to strengthen the U.S. role in fighting corruption globally? Absolutely. I think that's who we are as Americans, and I think that's what we need to do to make sure that we continue to fight corruption, because if we fight corruption, we will move closer to peace. There has been some suggestion of a national registry for subgroups of Americans. It's been talked about in regards to Muslim Americans that perhaps there should be a registry. Can you just tell us your view as to whether it's acceptable to have a registry for subgroups of Americans? Thank you, Senator Cardin, for that question, because I think it goes to maybe some discussions that had been had um, by President-elect Trump early on. and. Um, this administration and I don't think there should be any registry based on religion. I think what we do need to do is make sure that we know exactly which countries are a threat, which ones have terrorism, and those are the ones that we need to watch and be careful and vet as we go forward in terms of who comes into the country. I understand vetting people who come to America. I'm talking about American citizens. Is there any justification for any registry of subgroups of Americans? No, there is not. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Jim. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Good morning. Governor Haley, welcome. Thank you. Um, I want to thank you for your willingness to serve. Uh, you know, testimony from your state senators uh, in, outlined in your own testimony here, you, you've been a very effective leader in South Carolina, so you're obviously going to be leaving a state you love, a job you've performed well in, uh, taking on a pretty significant challenge. Uh, it's, it's striking, quite honestly, to listen to the chairman lay out point by point how ineffective the UN has been, how Ranking Member Cardin uh, says that the UN must change. Uh, it must be fair. People must be held accountable. In your testimony, you point out going back 40 years, uh, then Ambassador Daniel Patrick Moynikan said if there were no General Assembly, this could never happen. So you're taking on a challenge here to reform a UN that has been unreformable. Uh, do you have a game plan for doing so? It is what I've done all my life. I love to fix things, and I see a UN that can absolutely be fixed. There are reforms that need to be taken place in a lot of different areas. There are things that the UN does well, and we talked about um, the food and health organizations, what they've done with the AIDS epidemic. All of those things have been very good, but we do have to look at certain issues. If you look at, um, we have 16 peacekeeping operations. Some are very successful, some are not. And we need to go back and look at when we get into a mission, what is the end goal? Is it happening? Do we need to shift and do things differently, or do we need to pull out? You look at Sierra Leone, and you see it started off rocky, but it ended up very strong. If we look at South Sudan, it's 
it's terrible. But you also have to look that we're not getting cooperation from their own government. And that requires us to go back and look at that and see what can be salvaged from that. So I see peacekeeping reform from the standpoint of not just those issues, also when it comes to the whistleblower um, issues. We've seen fraud, we've seen sexual exploitation, we've seen um, corruption of all kinds, and the whistleblower, whistleblower protections are not strong enough. People are still too afraid to speak up. We need to make sure that the countries that are contributing troops hold those troops accountable when they go and they make these violations. That's not happening. And they need to understand that if we have to pull out their country's troops altogether, we will do that because many of those countries actually make money off of the peacekeeping missions. And so I do see lots of areas of reform that need to happen. But that is where I thrive. That is what I look forward to is making real change at the UN. So to a certain extent, what you're describing is, is shining light on these situations, sexual exploitation, highlighting that to you know, hopefully affect change and reform. Uh, in testimony, you also talked about leverage, and that would be the funding that the U.S. provides. Uh, would you have a particular game, particular game plan in terms of how we would use UN or U.S. funding to the U.N. to gain that leverage to actually enact some reforms that, again, they've been pretty uh, hard to, to enact over the last 40 years? Absolutely. I think that we need to go into every part of the organizations of the U.N., but one in particular is you can look at the Human Rights Council, and you have to really question... What, are, what is the goal of the Human Rights Council when they allow Cuba and China to serve on those? They basically are protecting their own interests while they're going after other countries to make sure that they give them a hard time. And so do we want to be a part of that? Do we want to leverage funding for that and say we don't want to do that? We've done that with UNESCO before, and we've also, um, you know, we've got decisions to make on those types of organizations. And so I, think, I do think it can be leveraged, and I do think it's something that we should be open about, and it's something I look forward to exploring further. So, so you won't shy away from threatening and actually enacting withholding U.S. funding to get, I, to, to get real reforms out of the U.N.? I won't shy away, and I need your help to do it. Because I, I need to be able to say that I have Congress backing me up, saying that if this doesn't change, the funding will stop. And I think that that could be great leverage. Now, I agree with your assessment of the, the real harm, uh, the damage of, of the most recent anti-Israel resolution. What can we do to repair the damage? Have you given that any thought? I have given it a lot of thought, and I think it's going to take time, and I think it's going to take effort by more than just me. First, we need to go and make sure that we let Israel know that we are an ally and that we will be an ally. And it is important because what happened with Resolution 2334, it basically said that being an ally to the United States doesn't mean anything. And if we are a strong ally, if we always stand with them, more countries will want to be our allies, and those that challenge us will think twice before they challenge us. What we saw with 2334 was it not only sent a bad signal to Israel, it told the entire world that we don't stand with anyone. And I think that that was a terrible mistake. And we have to come out strong. We have to be incredibly vocal. We need to probably fight harder than we've fought before. And it won't just be me. It needs to be from this Congress. It needs to be from the National Security Council. It needs to be from the president-elect. And we need to speak with one voice. I was in Israel the Sunday before that resolution. And I had about an hour-long meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu, and we talked about that. Uh, try, tried to push back on it, but I don't think there's anything we could have done to deter this administration from basically poking a stick in, in his eye and Israel's eye. Uh, 
certainly saw the consulate there in, in Jerusalem. Uh, have you taken a position? Would you support uh, moving the embassy from Tel Aviv into that consulate? It's really just a matter of changing a sign. Absolutely. Is that something you, would that be one of the actions we can take to repair the damage of that Absolutely. Resolution? Not only um, is that what Israel wants, but this Congress has also said that that's what they support. So we've talked about UN reforms. We've talked about repairing the damage of that UN resolution. What, what other priorities moving into this uh, position would you really concentrate on? I think the biggest part is how we represent America going forward. We need to represent our country from a point of strength. We need to remind the rest of the world that we are the moral compass of the world. And we need to express our values as we go forward. We need to let them know that we are not one that's going to be gray anymore. When we say something, that's where we stand. And when we say we're going to do something, we need to follow through and do that. And I think that we the strength that we show from the beginning and the way we handle it through our actions and my work with the Security Council and how we move forward dealing with other countries is going to do that. Well, again, Governor Haley, thank you for willing to serve. We look forward to working with you to, to affect those reforms. Thank, thank you, you, Senator. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Governor Haley, congratulations on your nomination. Thank, thank you. you. Good morning. Thank you for stopping by to visit with me. I think everybody here is impressed by your personal and professional story. And certainly nobody doubts your commitment to public service. Thank you. Um, however, the world in which we live in is complex. And the United Nations is an enormous organization with a wide mandate in which we have to carefully navigate our own interests, those of our allies, confront direct and indirect threats, and build consensus around some of the most confounding and complex problems. So with that in mind, uh, I'd like to ask you a broad set of questions. I think some of these can be yes or no's. Others may require a little bit more of an answer, and then uh, move to some specific areas. Do you believe it is in the national interest and security of the United States to continue to preserve and promote the international rules-based order that we created after World War II? In terms of? Of our national interest and security, to continue to promote and preserve the international order uh, and rules-based structure we created after World War II. Yes, sir, I do. Uh, do you believe that as part of that rules-based structure, the inviability of borders and territorial sovereignty is an essential part of that? I think that, are you in re referencing Israel and the Palestinian Authority, or are you? No, I'm just saying in general, as part of the rules-based order, do, we, do you believe that the inviability of borders of a nation uh, and its territorial sovereignty is an essential element of that? I do. Okay. And uh, do you believe that there should be serious consequences for violation of the international order? Again, I believe it's up to the circumstance, but yes. Okay. So when you say up to the circumstance, what circumstances of violations of the international order would you believe there aren't serious consequences for, and which ones should there be serious consequences I, for? So I think with every situation, it is important that we discuss it with the National Security Council, with the President-elect, and we have a plan. What we don't want is knee-jerk reactions. What we don't want is just quick answers to things. We should have a plan on every situation situation so that we know what our end goal is and what our mission is. I, I would hope that there are some things that are so overarching uh, that we don't have to convene the National Security Council to say that's a violation of the international order. For example, do you believe that Russia violated the international order when it annexed Crimea and invaded Ukraine? Yes, I do. Uh, do you believe there should be serious consequences for such actions? 
I think there should be consequences that we say, but if we're going to do that, we need to follow through on them and make sure they happen. I agree with you. We should always follow through. But you do believe there should be serious consequences yes. for violating that. Yes. So uh, in that regard, uh, we have a series of sanctions that have been levied against Russia. Uh, many members of this committee and others in a bipartisan basis have been promoting a new round of sanctions because of what they have continued to do in that regard what they have done in Syria, what they have done in trying to interfere in our own domestic elections. Um, and my question to you is, do you believe that those sanctions that are there should be preserved until there is a dramatic change by Russia? Uh, do you believe that they should be enhanced, knowing what we know today? forgetting about what may happen tomorrow. What, what is your view on sanctions as it relates to Russia? I certainly think they should be preserved, and I don't think they should be lifted unless we've seen a strong change from the Russian government. Okay. Do you believe that uh, Russia committed war crimes when it ultimately indiscriminately bombed civilians in Aleppo and hospitals in Aleppo? Yes, I do. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, when you sat with the president-elect, uh, I assume that in taking this role that has a global magnitude to it, you had some discussions about what the role would be like and whatnot. Did you uh, discuss Russia with him? We discussed basically the international situation. And I think that the president-elect is coming in again with a fresh set of eyes. He wants to look at each and every country. He wants to look at all of the threats that face us. And I think that he wants to work with the national security team to come up with a plan with each and every one. Did you specifically discuss Russia with him, though, as part of that? I, I, Russia came up. Yes, it did. Um, just from the standpoint of that we were going to have issues with Russia. Uh-huh. There are no greater specificity than that? No, sir. There was did you discuss China? Yes, we did. Uh -huh. And in what context was that discussion? The same thing. Just it was more about the issues that we had and the countries we were going to have them with, but it didn't go into detail as to what those were going to be. These two countries obviously are Security Council members, and yes, part of your challenge is uh, getting them not to be using their vetoes in ways that actually have undermined, in my view, the international order versus promoted. Uh, you know, I, I uh, totally agree with you when you, in your opening statement you said U.S. leadership is essential in the world, essential for the advancement of humanitarian goals, advancement of America's national interests, and when we fail to lead, the world becomes a more dangerous place. But I read some of the president-elect's comments that seem nothing short of denigrating towards our international commitments and international organizations like the U.N. I could read a litany of tweets, but I'll just choose two. When do you see the United Nations solving problems? They don't, they cause problems. And then at the flip side of that, he says, uh, China is filling the vacuum left by Obama at the UN. So it's either an entity that is worthy of being used to help promote US national uh, interests and security interests, uh, or it's not. And if you're worried about, quote unquote, China filling the vacuum, it's because there's something worthwhile to pursue because you don't care about losing uh, and having a vacuum filled if the entity is of no value. So my question is, uh, how do you reconcile those comments with concerns that if the United States pulls back at the UN, that China will fill the void? Uh, have you talked to the president-elect about 
the value and the effort that you are willing to undertake, leave your governorship and go to undertake in terms of making the UN as a strong institution that will promote our national security? I have talked to the president-elect about that, and when this um, position came up, he said that he wanted me to have a very strong voice in the UN, and he wanted us to have a higher profile in the UN and to really use it to work. And so I do think that obviously, you know, any comments that the president-elect has made, those are his comments. What I will tell you from my standpoint is, I think that we need to go back to what the UN was intended to be. And we host the UN, and that should give us great leverage in the way that we handle that. We are going to be dealing with some tough partners on the Security Council, you know, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, those that do veto. But we also have to remember we have a veto, so we can keep bad things from happening. The other side of that is we still need both those countries. We're going to need their help. We need China's help when it comes to North Korea. We need Russia's help when it comes to ISIS. We've got to find ways to let them know when we disagree with them, we should not be afraid to say when we disagree with them. When we need to work with them, we should tell them exactly what the end goal is and how we need to work with them. And the way we will get those vetoes not to happen is to show how it's in their best interest for their country to make sure they do that. You see China right now pulling away from North Korea a bit because they see the missiles that are being built. They know what's happening. And we just have to encourage them that this is not good for China. And then when you do that, that's when we can start seeing more pressure being put on North Korea. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Governor Haley, for thank your you. willingness to serve. And thank you to your family for being here today. And uh, thank you for your leadership during a time of, of shame in this country and tragedy in South Carolina. You made America proud thank for your you. actions. So thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, last week, we had an opportunity to hear from Rex Tillerson, nominee for Secretary of State. He talked about the importance of U.S. global leadership. Uh, we had a great interaction about the need for the U.S. to share our values around the globe because nobody else would do it. In his testimony, he talked about security, he talked about liberty, he talked about prosperity yes. and the great need to share those values because in his words he said, quote, we are the only country able to project, to project those values with authority. In 1950, in the observance of the fifth anniversary of the creation of the United Nations, President Truman stated that, quote, the United Nations represents the idea of a universal morality superior to the interest of individual nations. Its foundation does not rest upon power or privilege, it rests upon faith. They rest upon the faith of men and human values, upon the belief that men in every land hold the same high ideals and strive toward the same goals for peace and justice. This faith is deeply held by the people of the United States of America, and I believe by the peoples of all other countries. It seems like we have a United Nations today composed of people that are pretty far from the idea and the vision that President Truman outlined. It's this, this idea of faith of men and human values. The faith of men and human values apparently in Russia is illegal annexation uh, of Crimea. Human values to North Korea means torturing its own people, 200,000 people in political concentration camps. Values, human values in Iran mean the leading sponsor of terrorism around the globe. The United Nations recently, as we've talked about here, passage of Resolution 2334, and I encourage everybody here to watch the video of the reaction of the Security Council after the United States abstained from our leadership. Raucous applause broke out in the Security Council. Contrast that with the passage of Resolution 2270 at the Security Council, passage of a sanction against North Korea that has hundreds of thousands of people in, in political concentration camps, killing its own people, torturing its own people, starving its own people, and there was silence. 
The world apparently applauds when we attack our ally, but sits by silently when we condemn dictators. So to you, Governor Haley, how does the United States continue to project our values in the absence that we've shown the last eight years to assure that we are going to be indeed working with the world on those ideas that Rex Tillerson laid out of security, prosperity, and liberty? You know, I think that so much of this goes back to the fact that the world has seen us gray. They haven't seen a black and white of where we stand and where we don't stand. We need to stand and we need to stand strong. The world wants to see a strong America. That's what they were used to. That has faded. And it hit a, the ultimate low with Resolution 2334. Because when it shows that we won't even stand with our allies, that's a sad day in America. And it's a sad day for us in the world. I do think that what we will now start to do is show our strength. We will not be afraid to stand up. When we decide to make an action, we're going to follow through with it. And we're going to make sure that that's known. And I don't think we will be shy about the values of America and about what we're trying to achieve in bringing peace to the world. And we have to be loud and strong about that. And I intend to do that. And thank you, Governor Haley. And we've talked about the importance of projecting that strength, the leadership. Yes. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about alliances. Uh, your role is particularly important to be the face and voice of the United States uh, and that commitment to our allies. Organizations and alliances such as NATO matter. It matters greatly. And so do you, is, is it your commitment to strengthen our global alliances, strengthen alliances like NATO through the work that you carry out at the United Nations? Absolutely. We need as many allies and alliances as we can possibly get. And at this point, it is an, a numbers game. It is about addition. Because if we go and do sanctions, sanctions just by the U.S. doesn't work. Sanctions, when we combine and work with alliances, that makes progress. And so, so much of... What I look forward to doing is not just expressing the ideals of the United States and where we stand and the agreements and disagreements that we have. It's also building coalitions so that we look so strong, everyone wants to be our ally. And when it comes to calling out in public forums at the United Nations, no matter what country they are in, no matter where they are in the globe, when a dictator is corrupt, when a dictator abuses human rights, we will call it as we see it. You won't be afraid to do that. Is that correct? You should ask the people of my General Assembly in South Carolina. I have no problem calling people out. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Governor Haley. Uh, last Congress, Senator Menendez and I worked together on passage of the North Korea Sanctions Policy Enhancement Act. It's the first standalone mandatory legislation on North Korea that's Congress signed into law. It mandated sanctions uh, on uh, North Korea's ability to proliferate. Uh, it's sanctioned human rights violations and abuses. Just last week, additional sanctions were levied by the administration, and it's sanctioned for the first time ever mandatory cyber sanctions uh, requiring them to be put in place. Uh, in 2016, the Obama administration led and helped with those two security resolutions uh, through addressing North Korea. Have we effectively enforced the, the North Korea sanctions uh, enforce sanctions on North Korea. We inflect, uh, effectively in, in, uh, made sure that they're effective as well as uh, United Nations sanctions, uh, the 2270 resolution, have they been effectively in, enforced? I don't, I, sanctions are only as good as if you enforce them. And clearly there is more to do in North Korea. And when a line is crossed to not say anything, is going to be a problem. And so I think North Korea is definitely one to watch. I think we're going to have to work closely with China to show the threat of what is happening. And we can't let up on North Korea. What we are seeing right now is um, production of nu nuclear weapons, and he does not care. 
He's going to continue to do it, and we have to continue to make sure that we are making our voices loud, that we are talking about North Korea, and that we continue to put the pressure on China and other countries to make sure that North Korea does start to slow down. And, and what stop. should we do with China in order to get them more active in enforcing the sanctions against North Korea and their ability to help denuclearize the North Korean regime? I think that North Korea has started to do that themselves because China is now nervous and China has already started to pull back economically. And China has the greatest threat to North Korea and they know that. And so what we have to do is let China know this affects China, this affects their region of the world, this affects us. Not talk about it within our from our results and what it will do to the United States. Talk about it in terms of China and really encourage them to say, you are the one that can make a difference here. And I think that we just push them in that direction. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Governor Haley. Congratulations on thank your nomination. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for spending some time with me yesterday. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Me too, and as I said to you then, I've, I've been impressed by your work as the governor of South Carolina. Thank you. Um, and I very much appreciate in your statement your um, commitment to the U.S. leadership in the world and to your comments about um, your conversation with the president-elect about being a strong voice at the U.N. for the United States. Um, but I have to say that, unfortunately, um, as strong as I believe our ambassador to the UN can be, um, the president's words are often taken with much more weight. And I am disturbed by some of the president-elect's comments that are different than those positions you've enunciated here um, about the institutions that the United States helped create after World War II, about the UN, he recently called it in a tweet, just a club for people to get together and talk and have a good time. Um, in interviews this weekend, he criticized NATO. He was amazingly nonchalant about the future of the European Union and the transatlantic alliance. And I see the potential for real negative consequences because of um, that failure to recognize those institutions that have helped promote the security of the United States and have helped, um, have helped us as we've tried to lead in the world. Um, so I appreciate that you have said that you have the ear of the president and that you will be part of the national security um, apparatus. I think that's very important. But how will you avoid the conflict between your efforts at the UN and the Security Council and the president-elect's tweets his, the positions that he's taken on many of the issues that will come before the security, the United Nations. You know, I think that what the president-elect has put out there are his opinions as they stand now. What I do think is going to happen is I look forward to communicating to him how I feel, as I do, I know the rest of the National Security Council does as well. It is important that we have alliances. I know the president-elect realizes that. It is important that we create coalitions, and I know that he realizes that as well. And so his comments are really coming from the fact that he does have a fresh set of eyes. He is looking at those things. But my job's not just at the UN. My job is to come back to the National Security Council and let them know what I know, which is I want to bring back faith to the UN. I want to show that we could be a strong voice in the UN. I want to show that we can make progress and have action in the UN. 
that's going to happen from my actions and from the things that I do. And that's how I will show him that the UN matters. NATO obviously has been uh, an alliance that we value, an alliance that we need to keep. And I think that as we continue to talk to him about these alliances and how they can be helpful and strategic in the way that we move forward, I do anticipate that he will listen to all of us and hopefully that we can get him to see it the way we see it. Well, so do you agree with his suggestion that uh, Vladimir Putin has been a, a stronger, better leader than Angela Merkel? I think that what he is looking at, just like he's looking at associations, he's looking at opportunities, and he's trying to find opportunities where he can relate to different leaders and work with different leaders. That's not a bad thing. We should want. It's not a very good way to relate to Angela Merkel. I, no, it's not, and I agree with you on that. But I do think that's where he's trying to go: is see what relationship he can have with a lot of different leaders. And I think our goal is pull out the best we can in who we can deal with um, without having to um, talk negatively about someone else. Um, I, was, I appreciated your comments about um, disagreeing with the idea of a registry for um, any particular group in the United States for Muslims. In the past, you've criticized then-candidate Trump for proposing a ban on all Muslims traveling to the United States. Uh, do you continue to believe that that's unconstitutional? Yes, I do, and I made that clear during that time, just as I always speak up when I think something's wrong. But I do want to add that the president-elect has um, corrected his statement and said that he does not believe there should be a full ban on Muslims. He does believe that we should be conscious as we're looking at the refugee crisis and otherwise that we do not take people from any areas of threat. Um, today about 60 percent of all maternal deaths take place in humanitarian situations like refugee camps or areas that have been affected by conflict. Um, and in these settings, women and girls are often cut off from health care. You pointed out in your statement um, that you appreciate the challenges so many um, young women and girls face around the world in terms of access to the advantages we have in the United States. Um, many of those lives have been saved and can be saved with access to proper care, including prenatal care, voluntary family planning, and skilled birth attendance. And the United Nations Population Fund is the world's leading provider of life-saving care for mothers and their babies in humanitarian settings. They work with the World Food Program, with UNICEF, with the UNHCR. So if confirmed, would you continue to support those efforts by UNFPA? I will support any efforts that um, help educate help plan, help let them know what contraceptions are in place so that we can avoid any other further action. I am um, strongly pro-life, and so anything that we can do to keep from having abortions or to keep them from not knowing what is available, um, I will absolutely support. Um, well, I very much appreciate that because I think sometimes the idea of um, access to family planning services is conflated with abortion, and it's a very different issue. And this is a way to avoid um, abortions, unplanned pregnancies. That's exactly so right. thank you very much yes. for that comment. Um, as governor of South Carolina, you took the position that Syrian refugees were not being properly vetted. And so um, you question um, whether they should be allowed to settle in South Carolina. As um, ambassador to the UN, the US has had a role in galvanizing global support for refugees. 
do you see that the position, how will you um, be able to resolve the position that you've taken in South Carolina with your new role as ambassador when it comes to refugees? And I'm out of time, so I don't very, know if Very you, briefly. That's hard to give a brief answer to, but I will um, say that, first of all, um, our refugee program in this country is one that is valued and has done a lot of good. And when it comes to refugees, we have to remember those that we have always tried to help, those that have been persecuted for any reason. I will give a personal story in that my husband, when he was deployed to Afghanistan, there were two interpreters that kept his unit safe, and they kept them um, without harm. When it was time for that unit to leave, those two interpreters staying, they would have been killed. And so what the refugee program rightly does is it allowed them to go through and vet those interpreters. Those interpreters are now in the United States. They are now having jobs and contributing members of society. The issue with the refugees in terms of the Syrians, as governor of South Carolina, we always welcomed the refugee program. It changed when it came time to the Syrian refugees. And that was at a time where um, I did have a conversation with Director Comey, and I said, tell me if this is any different than the way we've handled it before. And that is when Director Comey said, we don't have enough information to vet these refugees. And I said, so you can't vet them the same way you vet others. And he said, we don't have the information. And that's when I said, we can't take refugees from Syria until I know that I can protect the people of South Carolina. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chairman. You. Thank you. Before moving to Senator Young, uh, Senator Rubio asked me a question a minute ago. I know that uh, uh, this has nothing to do with today's hearing, but um, a lot of committees swear nominees and witnesses in. Um, and have them stand up and do that, and some don't. Uh, whether they do that or not, they're bound by the, exactly the same obligations to Congress and that you have to tell the truth when you're in front of a committee. I know it came up relative to the, to the last hearing we had, and I just wanted to make sure everyone understood that. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman, uh, and thank you, Governor. Uh, good morning for your service uh, in the past and your interest in continuing to serve. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution grants to Congress the power to declare war. Going to war, of course, is one of the most serious decisions a nation can make, and the founders explicitly gave that authority to make the decision to the American people through their elected representatives. The U.S. hasn't declared war since World War II and instead periodically relied on authorizations of the use of military force. Two and a half years after we started bombing ISIS in Iraq, Congress still sits on the sidelines in terms of exercising this most important responsibility. We're instead relying on a 2001 authorization for the use of military force. It strains credibility at best, and I think sets a dangerous precedent. Perhaps some are concerned about going on the record in support of or in opposition to the war against ISIS. Uh, our war fighters and their families, uh, like your husband, have demonstrated incredible courage in taking the fight to terrorists. I believe if members of Congress show just a fraction of their courage, we can fulfill our constitutional duty to vote on an AUMF focused on ISIS. Friends and foes alike should know that our nation is all in when it comes to taking the fight to ISIS and other groups. So I know Senator Kane has uh, actively engaged on these issues. Others have, have been involved in this fight for some time. I understand the details and, and wording matter, 
of such an authorization uh, or, or declaration, as it were. I just want to go on the record early and clearly here in the Senate that I'm in favor of Congress showing courage and exercising its constitutional responsibility with respect to an AUMF focused on ISIS. Do you believe, with that long lead-in, that Congress should pass an AUMF, uh, an authorization for the use of military force against ISIS? Well, you understand that any time, first of all, Congress does have that authority, and that's an authority that should be respected always. Um, I think that when you talk about any sort of war or any sort of um, military interference, um, it's important to have a plan, and it's important to have an end goal. I say that as the wife of a military um, combat veteran. I say that as a sister, because families, once they send their loved ones into harm's way, they want to know that Congress and the president-elect has a plan. And so with that, ISIS is an extreme threat to America and the rest of the world. I do think that they have to be dealt with. I just think it needs to be done responsibly, knowing that we have measurables on what we are looking for, where the end goal is, and knowing exactly where the start and the stop is. Okay. Uh, I wanted to see how you, you thought through that issue. Uh, I, I agree with measurables. Um, that takes me to another topic, uh, with the understanding that uh, we can't defeat uh, or take on the world's ills through hard power alone. Agreed. It takes a mix of hard and soft power uh, in order to counter what has been called violent extremism uh, by the UN and by the United States. Um, uh, we're going to have to certainly defeat the, the perverse, perverted ideology of, of radical Islam and, and do so uh, by engaging in and winning the war of ideas. So based on your preparation for this hearing, what's your assessment of the U.S. government and the United Nations' current performance in the war of ideas abroad against the Islamic terrorist ideology? And what do you specifically think needs to be improved? Back to measuring success, how do we measure success in the war of ideas? I think that, first of all, we need to speak with one voice, and that's something that hasn't happened. I think it needs to be the president-elect. I think it needs to be the National Security Council, and I think it needs to be Congress along with the U.N., that when we say this is a problem, then we follow through with it and we finish what we start. I think that's incredibly important. And that way, when we're all speaking with one voice, the rest of the world knows this is serious to us. We mean business, and we're not going to stop until it's resolved. How will you divine what that one voice is? Will it be based on uh, legislative sort of resolutions coming out of, of uh, uh, Congress? Uh, uh, will it, and, and legislation signed into law by the president, uh, directives uh, of, of the executive branch that you'll take with you to the United Nations? Is, is that how you'll determine what that My hope is that voice the is that the president. I hope, my hope is that the President-elect, the National Security Council, and Congress work together to decide what that looks like, because I think that's very important um, if in any way any country in the world or um, ISIS sees a break in any of us, that will show us weak, and I think we need to all stand together and be very strong if we're going to go take this on and finish it. And then to measure success, how do we measure success in the war of ideas? when they are no longer a threat and when they are no longer causing harm to Americans. Are there any incremental success measures, 
public opinion polling surveys, those come to mind for me, but I'm, I'm sure there are probably some other sophisticated tools. It's hard to find anyone in America today that does not understand the threat of ISIS. Okay. Uh, in your prepared statement, you cite some of the failures of the United Nations, uh, and, and they're multifaceted. Mistreatment of Israel, preventing uh, the North Korean nuclear threat. Uh, I think the failure to act on Syria also belongs on the long list of UN failures. Hundreds of thousands of Syrians have been killed, half the country's population's been uprooted, much of the infrastructure lay in ruins. This is a genocide. Absolutely. I don't think we remind the American people and, and the international community frequently enough that uh, a, a, a genocide has occurred here. Would you agree the UN Security Council's failed with respect to the Assad regime and the catastrophe in Syria, yes or no? Yes. In your opinion, why did the UN Security Council fail to act more forcefully with respect to the Assad regime and the ca catastrophe in Syria? I look forward to getting into the UN and finding out why they think hitting Israel is so much more important than dealing well, with Syria. Well, I think Syria. it's because Russia consistently uh, uh, employed a veto. Uh, Ru Russia vetoed at least six UN Security Council resolutions focusing on the Assad regime. You indicated Russia committed war crimes in Syria, I believe in the hearing here today. Uh, I'm glad you acknowledged that. Do you agree that both at the UN in New York and on the streets of Aleppo, Moscow ha has acted as an active accomplice in Assad's murder of his own people? Yes, I do. All right, thank you. Uh, thank you. If I could, I, I can't let this pass. Um, it would be my observation, and everybody has their own, that the AUMF issue has nothing whatsoever to do with courage. Nothing. That if... Um, there was an authorization for the use of force that gave the president all means to fight ISIS, and that was it. It was like 12 words. You'd have like 11 votes. And if you had one that said he can use all means, but you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, and you can only go into X countries, it would have 10 votes. And so the fact is that uh, it's, there's a divide. And we have an authorization that is legal, that everybody's come before our committee has said is legal. And at a time when we did not want to show division as it related to ISIS, it just seemed it was better instead of getting to a hung place here, um, it was better to stand behind what most people believe to be uh, uh, a perfectly legal basis upon which to fight ISIS. But I'm more than willing to take it up. There is a divide. Uh, about whether the commander-in-chief should have all means available to him to fight ISIS. It's a philosophical divide. And I would just say one more time, I'll say it strongly, has nothing whatsoever to do with courage. Could, could I, Mr. Okay. Chair, Mr. Chairman, if I could just, I, I agree with everything the chairman said there. I just want to go on record as saying that, except for one point, and that is there is serious concern as to whether the current authorization used by the Obama administration and potentially to be used by the Trump administration covers the military actions that they have pursued. There is a serious challenge about yeah. that. There is, and, and uh, you know, the administration has made their point. Uh, I happen to have agreed with that point. I do want to say that uh, Senator Kane and Senator Flake have brought this issue up several times. I am more than willing to engage in a discussion. I just think that when you're going to authorize the president to do something, it's best for Congress not to micromanage what uh, is being authorized in that regard. There's disagreement there, and uh, that's something that we might flesh out. But I just want to say one more time, 
the courage issue hits a nerve, nothing whatsoever. As a matter of fact, sometimes it takes courage to, to do the things that make sure that people see our country as being unified and not divided over something that I know we're unified on. Everybody on this panel wants to see us defeat ISIS. There are some issues we may want to resolve, but we're unified in that regard, and showing division is not something that I feel uh, is particularly good for our country to do at this time, but I'm more than willing to debate it. You might want to say one other thing. Um, yes, uh, to the extent I uh, offended or impugned the courage of any of my colleagues, I, of course, want to go on record and, and say that wasn't the intent. But uh, I, I, I do think that we'll have to lay into this issue, continue to very publicly um, exchange views on it. And I do think that um, that requires uh, courage because it's an uncomfortable topic to broach. Uh, so thank you. With that, I yield back. Thank you so much. Uh, Senator Udall. Thank you uh, very much, Mr. Chairman. And Governor Haley, uh, thank you very much for coming uh, to my office and, and sharing your views. And it's great uh, to have you here today and great to have your family here. And I want to thank your husband and your older brother for their service in the military. You obviously have an impressive story here to tell, and, and uh, we appreciate you being here. I'm a, I'm a very uh, strong supporter of the United Nations, and I believe that strong U.S. leadership is needed to ensure that the United Nations remains a viable institution in the future. I've been extremely alarmed by some of the President-elect Trump's uh, derisive comments about the U.N., and I'm very concerned that his statements have harmed our efforts in that body, and it's good to see that you're clarifying some of those. The most discouraging is that he has insinuated or allowed the perception that the United States will no longer take a leadership role. And you're saying today, I think, that you're going to assert that role. I, I, that he would have cut off funding and would end our participation in important aspects of the UN. This is not a formula for success. U.S. leadership is paramount. If we left a political vacuum, it would likely be filled by countries that might not necessarily share our interests, such as Russia and China. I hope that I am mistaken, and I hope you will be an advocate for U.S. participation in the United Nations, and I believe you've stated that here today. It's very clear that Russia attempted to influence our election. If you are confirmed to serve as ambassador to the U.N., will you stand up to Vladimir Putin and against Russia's attempt to interfere with our electoral system? We should stand up to any country that attempts to interfere with our system. And, and, will, and what will your message to your Russian counterpart on the Security Council be with regard to their attempts to influence the U.S. elections? That we are aware that it has happened, that we don't find it acceptable, and that we are going to fight back every time we see something like that happening. I don't think Russia is going to be the only one. I think we're going to start to see this around the world with other countries, and I think that we need to take a firm stand that when we see that happens, we are not going to um, take that softly. We are going to be very hard on that. And you, and you're, it sounds like you're going to stand strong and tough on this. Without question. Now, last September, the world passed a milestone in carbon emissions, reaching 400 parts per million. 2016, I think, was also uh, the hottest uh, on record uh, in terms of, of our climate. We're moving closer to more, a more unstable climate future, a future that could threaten my home state in New Mexico with 
heat waves and dangerous droughts, and your state with increased coastal flooding and perilous storms. And that threatens stability, I think, across the globe. And a lot of people talk about climate refugees. We've talked about other kinds of refugees here. Do you agree that the United States is indispensable and must maintain its leadership in the Paris Agreement in order to ensure that countries abide by their climate obligations? I think that the climate change situation should always be on the table. It should always be one of the issues that we look at. But I do think that when we look at the Paris Agreement, we should acknowledge what we do believe is right, but we don't want to do it at the peril of our industries and our businesses along the way. As governor of South Carolina, what you would see is we'd work really hard to recruit a company to from another country, and then by the time they saw the regulations and the, the burdens that were put down on them, they started to pull back. We don't ever want it to interfere with our economy, but I absolutely think that climate change should always be on the table as one of the factors that we talk about. But you're, you're not one to say you're going to tear up the Paris Agreement. And the United States, which has helped to bring all these countries together, and for the first time in a generation, we have countries together that you're going to walk away from that. I think that we want to work on the things that we believe work and benefit the world and the United States. But if we do see burdens that are costing our businesses, then I do think that that's something that I wouldn't agree with. Well, they, they, are you... Are you uh, are you committed to stay a part of the Paris Agreement and work towards uh, climate change objectives and goals? Climate change will always be on the table for me. Yeah. Now, we talked earlier about UN Resolution 2334. Uh, this was a resolution about Israeli settlements. These settlements have been uh, greatly expanded in recent years. The settlement dispute goes way, way back, many, many years. In fact, Ronald Reagan said in 1982, and this is his statement, the United States will not support the use of any additional land for the purpose of settlements during the transitional period. Indeed, the immediate adoption of a settlement freeze by Israel more than any other action could create the confidence needed for wider participation in these talks. That position on settlements has been a bipartisan policy of the United States going back to President Johnson. Uh, are the settlements that break up the possibility of a future contiguous Palestinian state harmful to achieving a two-state solution, in your opinion? I think what was very harmful to achieving the two-state solution was Resolution 2334, because the whole goal has been to have Israel and the Palestinian Authority at the table talking. That should be the role of the United Nations. and as we go forward is to support that. When we basically abstained from 2334, we made Israel more vulnerable. We made America more vulnerable and that we don't stand by our allies. We need to let the two bodies resolve this themselves. That is what has always taken place. And I think it's dangerous when the UN starts to tell two different bodies what should and shouldn't happen. Well, you, you, uh, all those things you said were also in Samantha Power's statements, but are you committed on settlements to the bipartisan policy that has stood for over 50 years in this country. I understand. On the UN, the bipartisan policy our country has taken on settlements. I do understand the issue on settlements. I will continue to, um, I do understand how they think that could um, hinder peace, but at the same time, I will always stand with Israel and make sure that we, they know we're an ally and the rest of the world knows that but we're an ally. The question is, are you committed to the bipartisan policy on settlements? Yes, I am. And the expansion of settlements. Thank you very much.
Thank you. I, I think if I understand correctly, what she's saying is she she supports a two-state solution, but understands the parties themselves have got to resolve it. And the UN Security Council inserting themselves into that process, as it has been, can be very detrimental. Yes, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, the 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 statement, and I'd like to put the full statement of our our um, UN Ambassador Samantha Powers in the record at this point. She said specifically what, what you have said. The United States supports the Stu State solution. Many of the things that our ambassadorial uh, designates say here, but the issue of the resolution, the issue of the resolution was about an expanded settlement policy. And she has committed to stand with that bipartisan policy which the which I believe you answered the question yes when I said well are you I, going to stand with a bipartisan policy that has uh, this not only this administration but every administration since President Johnson has supported on the expansion of settlements and I want to clarify because I don't want there to be any gray in this what I think happened with 2334 was a kick in the gut to everyone. And so we can think what we want to think on settlements, but you have to go back to the fact that the U.S. abstention, when that has not happened since 2011 at all, against Israel was wrong. And I think the fact that we have not allowed the Palestinian Authority and, and Israel to resolve this themselves is wrong. And I think for the UN to have inserted themselves into that, I believe is wrong. So I wanna make sure that I'm clear on record as to saying what I think about Resolution 2334. Appreciate it. I, I think there may be some factual dispute about your last statement. I think we had some discussion about that in committee. I just wanna I don't want to leave that last statement hanging without a uh, retort. And with that, uh, Senator Flake. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for your testimony. Thanks for coming in to my office and the visits that you've made. And uh, appreciate also your family. My Great to have them Thank here you. and uh, appreciate the sacrifices they have made in the past for your public service and will make in the future, as well as a military service for our country. Um, I've seen. Uh, examples of the UN working well, and obviously seeing examples of dysfunction. I happened to spend uh, a year of my life and my family, uh, we went to the country of Namibia in 1989 to see UN resolution, Security Council resolution 435 be implemented, uh, April of uh, 89 to April of 90, and watched where the UN can work and work well. It, that was a process process by which uh, Namibia achieved its independence from South Africa. That uh, resolution was passed a decade earlier that was finally implemented then. And uh, Namibia is a fine democracy today, uh, much owing to the United Nations and the role that the Security Council resolution played there. And so I, I've seen it work, but also you've mentioned in your testimony many examples of the dysfunction. A lot of that has to do with uh, the General Assembly or UNESCO and other organizations, uh, but, but also plenty of dysfunction with the Security Council. And the failure is, has been mentioned uh, to uh, take a position and take a stand with regard to Syria uh, will, I think, be judged harshly by history. Um, but let me talk just a bit about uh, peacekeeping. We've seen examples there of where peacekeeping has worked as well. UN peacekeeping forces along the Golan Heights, for example, for years uh, kept the peace there. Um, 
a lot of peacekeeping now is done, uh, obviously, in the continent of Africa. Um, I have a particular interest, obviously, there. The UN can, or the U.S. contributes uh, 2.6 billion peacekeeping in peacekeeping activities. That's about 28 percent. Entire UN budget, it's about 22. But peacekeeping, as you know, it's a, 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 a more even more of a disproportionate number. Next highest is China, uh, with just 10 percent. Um, we uh, talked a little bit earlier on about uh, South Sudan and the situation there. That's an area where um, peacekeeping is not working well. The, the focus of the mission there has been uh, uh, changed a bit. We're, we're trying to, uh, uh, to make sure that, uh, uh, I think the quote is, uh, protection of civilians, human rights monitoring, support of delivery of humanitarian assistance, and the implementation of the cessation of hostilities agreement. Uh, that is not going well. What can we do uh, to make the situation better there? That's a particular focus of our peacekeeping activities. With South Sudan? Yes. You know, I think that, first of all, we should look at all 16 of them. Um, secondly, I, I do want to point out that we are pushing on 29 percent um, for the peacekeeping budget, and according to the Helms-Biden Act, it really should be at 25 percent, and we need to be conscious of that. Uh, first of all, I think what's very important is we have to start encouraging other countries to have skin in the game. They have to start being a part of the peacekeeping process because by doing that, they will want to see more transparency. They will want to see more accountability in the way the peacekeeping missions are handled. When you look at South Sudan, I think there's something to be said that we have to make sure that the security is already in place when we go to do a peacekeeping mission. The peacekeeping um, officials are not meant to fight. They're not meant to get involved or take sides on anything. They're there to keep the peace. Mm -hmm. And so our goal should be go in, keep the peace, get it settled, and get out. And what we're seeing in South Sudan is the government doesn't agree with the fact that the peacekeepers are there. And so that's a problem. And we need to know that if we are doing good, we want to stay. If we are not doing good, then we need to get out. And I think it's extremely hard to see that the government is against us because it's kind of going against what we're trying to do with the peacekeeping mission to start with. Mm -hmm. You mentioned 16 peacekeeping operations. Nine of those are in Africa. Yes, the last they are. six that have been approved by the Security Council are in Africa as well. And uh, I'm happy to. To, to hear that uh, you're going to delve in and, and, and see how we're doing with those. What other metrics can be used? Uh, I know Senator Young mentioned that uh, in terms of whether or not we're getting bang for the buck out you of know, our involvement. It, it is one of those where you do have to decide before you even take on a peacekeeping mission if it is something that can see success, if we can get to a resolution. And I think that part of that is making sure that there's a secure base to start with, making sure that we are taking care of things. If you look at the peace missions in Africa, it has been devastating to see this sexual exploitation, the fraud, the abuse that's happening. And we have to acknowledge that some countries are contributing troops because they're making money off of that. And so if they are not willing to um, make sure that they are punishing the violators, then we need to actually pull that country's troops out because they are harming the peace process. The last thing we want is for UN peacekeepers to go into a country and for people to be scared.
and for people to be vulnerable. And I think we are seeing that right now, and mostly in Africa. And I think that's a problem because once we have transparency of how this money is being spent, then we can bring accountability to the actions that are being taken, strengthen the whistleblowing process, and make sure that we're actually doing what was intended to do. And I think this is extremely important because when we start to become more transparent and accountable, we will start to see the waste of the dollars. And you won't see U.S. putting 29% in. You'll see them putting in less than 25 And we will see countries starting to really have skin in the game, which I think is hugely important if we're going to continue peacekeeping missions. Well, thank you. I'm glad to hear you acknowledge the problems that have we've had with these peacekeeping missions to see the, the sexual abuse uh, and whatnot going on there is just devastating. It and, is. And uh, you're right, uh, for those countries in which peacekeepers are, are there to not to have trust uh, in the UN process there is, is devastating. So I hope that we are more proactive to make sure the offending countries uh, with troops there are uh, dealt with more quickly. And uh, I appreciate the testimony and look forward to further discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, without objection, um, I'm going to ask that we go ahead and enter into the record UN Security Council Resolution 2334 so everyone can discern for themselves um, what it actually said. Senator Murphy. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Governor Haley, for being willing to serve. Thank you for your history of speaking truth to power. Uh, I enjoyed the time we spent together um, discussing some of the issues you're going to face. Appreciate you being here before the committee. Um, and, and, and so I, I say this re respectfully. I sort of feel like the hearings we've had, um, uh, this hearing and the hearing on Secretary of State nominee Tillerson, have occurred in an alternate universe. I hear loud and clear what you're saying about needing for the United States to be clear about where we stand and strong in our values. And I think that uh, Mr. Tillerson used the same phrasing over and over again. And I think we would all agree that those should be goals of US foreign policy. But President-elect Trump has downplayed Russian attempts to influence our election. He's suggested that NATO is obsolete. He's openly rooted for the breakup of the European Union. He's lavished praise on Vladimir Putin and refused to commit to continuing sanctions. He's criticized one of our most important allies in the world, Chancellor Merkel. He's promised to bring back torture. And he's called for Japan and South Korea to take a look at obtaining nuclear weapons because they probably can't rely on our security guarantee any longer. And so I hear what you're saying, but can you understand why right now the world perceives the Trump administration's foreign policy to be the exact opposite of clear about where we stand and strong in our values? I, I, I hear what you're saying, but can you understand why the world perceives the foreign policy to be the exact opposite of what you're articulating it will be? I understand that anytime there's a new administration, there is always nerve, nervousness and there's always concern. It happened with um, President Obama. It's happened with presidents before that. That is something that is just natural. It's natural to the world to all watch the United States because we are such a leader to see who is, 
who's going to follow it. It's also natural for a candidate or an incoming president to look at everything and to say things. Once you govern, it becomes very different. And I think that what we have seen is um, that once the president-elect gets to hear from his national security team, I think what he says after that will be most important. And I think those are the focuses that we are going to have with the National Security Council and making sure that we educate, inform him of what we know, inform him of strategies, and then go along with whatever decision he decides to make. And I, and I heard a version of this uh, in your answer to Senator Shaheen. So you believe that after two years of suggesting radical changes regarding U.S. policy about conveying really muddled messages about where we stand, that's all going to change after Friday? Not all of it will change after Friday, but what I know is I'm going to control the part that I can, and what I can control is the UN. And so I am going to use the power of my voice in the UN to talk about America's ideals and our values and our strength and our freedoms. I'm going to talk to the president-elect about the UN and the opportunities for strategy and dealing with Russia and China and North Korea and Syria as we go forward. And I think that we are going to have a lot of opportunities to make that better. And I, I do think that my counterparts as well are going to inform the president-elect on what they're seeing. And so, you know, that's how an administration works. You surround yourself with people who don't just say yes to what you think. They actually challenge you and they tell you of other opinions. And what I know about president-elect is he actually will listen. Let me, let me ask you about the future of the UN. You have a lot of Democrats in South Carolina that don't get what they want all the time from the state legislature and from their governor. Um, and so, um, would you advise Democrats in the state legislature in South Carolina to boycott the state legislature if they don't get what they want or for registered Democrats in South Carolina to stop paying their taxes if they don't get what they want from the state government? Well, we have laws in place, so they can't just stop paying their taxes or they will um, deal with that. Legislators can have been known to do whatever they want. And uh, as governor, I've seen that happen. So it's, it's two totally different things. I guess uh, you understand why I'm making the point. The reason that we invest in the UN is not because we expect to win every fight. It's not because we expect to have our views prevail, but because we think it's important to have a deliberative body in which differences can be expressed out in the open rather than always dealt with behind closed doors. And the risk of pulling funding because the United States doesn't get its way is potentially catastrophic. The UN provides food for 90 million people in 80 countries around the world. It vaccinates 40% of the world's children. It assists 55 million refugees and people fleeing wars, famine, or persecution. And it provides maternal health care to 30 million vulnerable women. And so I guess my question is, you're suggesting that we should pull funding from the United Nations if we don't win votes in the General Assembly. I've never suggested that, sir. And if, if that's the way you took it, then that was um, not what I intended to say. I do not think we need to pull money from the UN. We don't believe in slash and burn. It didn't wasn't anything I considered as governor. It's not something I would consider as ambassador or anything that I would suggest back to you for Congress. I think that what's important is we look at every 
organization, see if it's working for us, see if it's something we want to be a part of, and then I report back to you as well as to the president-elect on whether that's something we need to be a part of. I know that he had made comments about the UN, um, but those are not my feelings, and I don't think that's what's going to happen. I, re I really thank you for that answer. I think it's a really important answer, and so I, I want to just maybe ask you to to, to, to make that answer a little bit clearer. So you don't believe that we should be threatening to pull funds based on outcomes in the General Assembly that we don't agree with. You would pull funds if you don't think that programs are effective, but you wouldn't threaten to pull funds because we don't get the outcome that we want from the deliberative process. Right. My job is to make sure that we work to figure out how we get the outcomes and to negotiate and to make sure that I'm working with those leaders and doing that. If, for example, we see in the Human Rights Council that Cuba's there and China's there and we're not seeing the human rights move in the way the Americans' values are supposed to, Yes, I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to say, this is a real problem. This doesn't follow our mission. I may go there and find out that there's a way to resolve that. And so with those, I'll come back to you. But no, I do not think we should have a slash and burn of the UN. I, I appreciate that. I'll just note um, that um, since rejoining the Human Rights Council, we were out of it from 2007 to 2009. Um, once we rejoined, special sessions on Israel dropped by 50%. And resolutions on Israel dropped by 30%. So engagement in these forums uh, do, do matter. And I really appreciate your answer to the question. And questions. I look forward to looking into that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you, Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And welcome to you and your family. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Your family uh, story is the quintessential American story. Thank and you. in my view, it's a story that the rest of the world appreciates and respects when reminded of it. And I think your very presence at the United Nations would be a reminder of that and what makes our country unique. And, and um, I also think your management skills that you've shown as governor will be effective in encouraging the UN to be more efficient, uh, which is a problem in my view. I was once a member of the UN Human Rights Subcommittee after the first Bush administration. And um, uh, after I left that administration, during that administration I served and it was a very interesting experience. You know, you had uh, some positives, which is talking about human rights. You also had uh, some negatives, which is that human rights abusers used it for their own political purposes. And um, so I, I do think, in response to your question to Senator Murphy, that the opportunity for reform is, is obvious. And when all of our taxpayers are paying roughly 22% of the budget, I think they do expect to see a more efficient and, and an organization that's more objective and more in keeping with our values. And again, the, the values that so many other countries seek as well when they look at America's story that you will represent. Um, we've talked about a lot of issues today. Uh, my view is that we're in a more dangerous and volatile world in part because America has not led. And if you look at what's happening on the eastern border of Ukraine or with Crimea or in the South China Sea today or certainly what's happening in Syria, you know, part of this is a lack of leadership. And I, I do think that you also see a crumbling of the very foundation of the post-World War II U.S.-led security umbrella that has kept the peace. And um, so I guess my, my first question to you is just about that. You know, how, how do you intend to support U.S. national security interests, but also ensure that the U.N. is a more effective body toward promoting a more peaceful and less volatile world? Well, thank you for that question, Senator. I think that, first of all, we need to 
really have a conversation with other countries on the importance of them having skin in the game. Because when they have skin in the game, they will care more about how those dollars are spent. And I think that that's where we can really bring more efficiencies to the UN, more effectiveness to the UN when we get more involved. That's something that I'm going to try and work on and see if we can get them to understand that being present is not enough. Being invested is what's going to make the UN stronger for everyone. So that is the first thing. I think the second thing is we have to have a very strong voice. We have to be very strong on if there are resolutions coming up and we're not seeing resolutions that deal with Syria and we're not seeing resolutions that deal with North Korea and we're not calling out the violators that are there, that is up to us to bring up that conversation. It's for us ourselves. to start it. Yeah. Uh, Israel's been talked about today, obviously a big issue at the UN, um, and I would agree with what was said today about the fact that this relationship is a cornerstone of our strategy in the Middle East. Uh, they are our best ally uh, in the region. They are the one democracy in, in the Middle East. Um, let me focus on one specific issue, which, which is the uh, boycotts, divestments, and sanctions movement, BDS. And this is something that I've worked on over the years, actually with Ben Cardin, the ranking member here. In fact, we've proposed a number of legislative solutions, one of which uh, is the law of the land now. It was passed as part of the Trade Promotion Authority bill that requires us to look at BDS as a trade negotiating objective in our trade agreements, which is, which is a, a, an historic change uh, in the way the U.S. has dealt with this. Can you talk a little about that? Um, what do you think should be done with regard to countering boycott, divestment, and sanction efforts against Israel, really the sense of trying to delegitimize Israel, and a little bit about your experience uh, in South Carolina with regard to this issue. Uh, well, first of all, very proud to say as governor of South Carolina that we were the first state in the country to pass an anti-BDS law in, uh, in our state, and so that was trying to really make the point of how important we think it is. I think as we go to the UN, that is a point that has to be made. There, we have to look at the fact and call out the fact. Why is it that the Security Council is so concerned with Israel? It is an obsession that they have with Israel where they don't have with North Korea, where they don't have with Syria, where they don't have with other things that are going on. And so it is up to us to talk about the fact that you can't have boycotts against a country that is just trying to protect its people. And I think that you are find, finding an authority, not a state, that is actually leading the charge on this. And I think that that's wrong. And I think that we're going to have to continue to really be more aggressive, call them out, let them know what's wrong, and then find out what their answers are. Because there is no good, fair, honest answer on why they continue to pick on Israel and why they continue to allow these things happen. Let me talk briefly about the, this broader issue of uh, Russia, China, other countries using disinformation and propaganda. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about the meddling in our election here, uh, which is a great concern of, of all of us. Um, publicly, I've heard uh, the UK and Germany both express concerns even recently on this topic. Certainly when I travel in Eastern Europe, every country in the region is very concerned about this issue of disinformation and specifically the effort to to meddle in democracies, fledgling democracies. Um, I wonder in your role as ambassador what you would intend to do about that. Um, there's this new global engagement center that's been set up at the State Department. Senator Murphy and I worked on legislation that was passed as part of the National Defense Authorization Bill to establish this. Um, I think the U.S. is asleep at the switch. I think we have not kept up with the 
the, the counter efforts that have come our way and to our allies, specifically with regard to technology and being online. Can you comment on that and what you're willing to do as ambassador uh, to push back against this campaign of disinformation that's being waged by some countries? Well, first of all, I applaud you for wanting to improve our technologies and, and the way we handle cybersecurity issues or other types of hackings and, and countries getting involved in our business because we are behind the curve on that and we very much need to get in front of it because the rest of the countries are. Having said that, we need to make it very clear that we do not accept any country that tries to meddle in any of the business of the United States and that needs, needs to be made loud and clear. It needs to be made loud of any of the violators. We need to be able to call them out by name and we need to let them know that this is not something that we're going to allow going forward and I think this is going to be more of a conversation, not just for the United States, but for our European allies and other allies around the world because they are feeling the same thing and they are concerned about the same thing and in some cases have witnessed the same thing. Thank you, Governor. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank, Thank you, you, Senator. Sir. Thank you. Senator Booker. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Governor, it's very good to see you here, and I want to just uh, thank you for bringing your family here. Uh, you add a, a proud level of diversity to the leadership of our country, and I think it's needed, uh, and I think your record is something in South Carolina that there are many aspects of it that I uh, celebrate, uh, particularly um, what I think you showed, especially in the wake of a horrific shooting. Uh, you showed grace and dignity uh, in dealing with the tragedy, and then you showed tremendous courage in removing the Confederate flag from the State House. and I've, I've been uh, in a state of gratitude about that in particular, so thank you very much for showing a strength of leadership during very, very difficult times. Thank you. Um, you and I have had some time to talk in the past, and we've known each other for some years. Um, and uh, you'll have to forgive me, I have three hearings going on at the same time. So you're just here to say nice things about me. Um, I, I <laughs> <laughs> Touche, Governor. <laughs> um, um, let me just, I, forgive me if some of these questions may have been covered uh, uh, before. Understood. All right. So, um, uh, Governor Haley, do you support a two-state solution? I do. Um, Governor Haley, do you believe that it advances U.S. interests to provide food, jobs, homes, and hope to the people of the West Bank uh, and Gaza by decreasing the pool of potential recruits or radicalized individuals to join organiz terrorist organizations like Hamas? Yes, I mean, I think that we need to do whatever we can to protect the region, and I think that we need to make sure that we're doing all we can to go against the threats. Yes, and I'm grateful for your very strong, steadfast uh, statements in terms of the support of Israel and pointing out uh, what even a former UN Secretary General has pointed out about the biased nature of the UN against Israel. Um, but uh, security for Israel is something that's uh, of critical import to me, uh, and there are serious issues uh, around the security. But again, as a security guarantor, does the aid that the UN provide save the government of Israel the expense of providing assistance to the people of the West Bank? In other words, a lot of the work that the UN's doing to provide basic uh, humanitarian aid, uh, uplifting the dignity of people, access to clean water, are, are these things um, critical as a larger part of, of Israeli security and that of the uh, beauty and the dignity of the Palestinian people? I think it is. It's something I want to get more information on, but I think that any time that we can help mankind, regardless of where they are and what country they're in, the United States has always been there. And so I do think that any time we can create peace, then we want to do that. And so certainly any services that we're giving to that area right now will continue to look into and work on. And I hear sometimes, and I find it problematic, that with the obvious realities of terrorism, sometimes people's response to that is wanting to cut off that vital aid that provides 
basic human needs. Um, is that something that those calls to cut off that kind of aid, does that concern you? You know, I haven't had anyone talk to me about cutting off the aid, um, but I also think that it's like everything else I've said. We need to look at each and every mission, see what we're doing, and see how we can make it more effective for the people in the area. Okay. Um, I want to switch real quickly to something you and I discussed together, uh, and I think it's important to do it on the record. Um, we talked about uh, the challenges of the LGBT community, even here in the United States. Uh, we see 40% of all homeless youth in this country are uh, LGBT youth. 50% uh, of LGBT youth uh, miss school because of fear of bullying. Uh, on the international context, uh, you see even more serious challenges to the basic human rights and dignity of LGBT uh, um, citizens of the world. Uh, Ambassador Power uh, has been a champion of LGBT human rights. She's really put it at the forefront of her work. Uh, she put the issue at the heart even of the Security Council, which is a, a, a pretty um, important uh, and bold step, step, uh, step. She said in a speech that LGBT rights are human rights, human rights are LGBT rights, and human rights must be universal. Um, if confirmed, uh, can you just say a, 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 a little bit about how you plan to continue the, um, the leadership of the United States on this issue, given the fact of uh, really tragic uh, uh, realities going on around the globe of not just abuse, not just harassment, but uh, physical torture and killings uh, of uh, imprisonment and killings of uh, LGBT people? And do you pledge, can you pledge here that, that you'll maintain our country's positive voting record on critical human rights resolutions and mechanisms uh, for all people, obviously, but including um, and LGBT, and finally, will, will, under your leadership, the United States continue to work behind the scenes to support the principle that LGBT rights are human rights? Thank you, Senator, for that question. I think it's very important that we talk about America's values. And when it comes to America's values and opportunities, we do not allow for discrimination of any kind to anyone. And that is something I will always speak uh, loudly about. It's something that I will always fight for, and I think it's important that we never have to deal with discrimination in this country, and I don't want to see any other country have to deal with discrimination. And on specifically LGBT rights, will you be looking to be a, a champion of protecting their dignity, their security, and their safety in the global human, human rights context? I will be, uh, I will make sure that there is no one that is discriminated against for any reason whatsoever, and every person deserves decency and respect. Thank you very much. I know Senator Shaheen asked a little bit about contraception. Um, if I may uh, just uh, uh, drill down on that a little bit more. Um, the United Nations announced in 2012 that access to contraception is also a universal human right and that can dramatically affect the lives of women and children in some of the world's poorest countries. Uh, as you know, women who use contraception are, contraception are generally healthier, better educated, more empowered in their households and communi communities, and economically often more productive. In women's increased labor force participation that is a result often of having access to contraception boosts the nation's economies. This is giving women uh, the power uh, of contraception. It has a profound impact. Um, can you just speak generally in the remaining seconds that I have and how you will work with other countries to recognize the benefits of access to safe and effective family planning methods and support politics uh, and policies that are supportive of family planning? Well, and as we discussed, I am strongly pro-life and will always be pro-life. And so to me, education and contraception are important to those countries so that they know that they don't get put into a situation where we have to 
um, sacrifice a life in the process. So yes, absolutely, when it comes to the education and the contraceptions, I think those are incredibly important um, that we educate and that we make sure that those are provided to other countries. Um, and I just want to say in closing, in, in closing before the next round that I'm, as I said to you in, in private, I'm very grateful that you are, that Donald Trump is including you in, the President-elect Donald Trump is including you in his Security Council and in, in, in a significant role. And I hope that you will be one of those independent voices as you were during the campaign uh, that will speak truth to power no matter uh, what the consequences. Yes, I will. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Governor Haley, welcome. Uh, Good morning. Congratulations. I, uh, Thank you. Of course, had the opportunity to get to know you and your family quite a bit about this time last year in another endeavor and came away from it incredibly impressed and, uh, and excited now about this opportunity you'll have to represent our country. I wanted to summarize some of the testimony because it's going to lead to the question that I have to ask. First, in your written statement, you said that in the matter of human rights, I have a clear understanding that it is not acceptable to stay silent when our values are challenged. Uh, you also said that, uh, that in terms of reforming the UN, we need to build an inst international institution that honors America's commitment to freedom, democracy, and human rights. In your testimony, you have said that uh, you do not believe that sanctions should be removed uh, from Russia without positive actions regarding the actions that led to the sanctions in the first place. Yeah, you testified as well that you believe that uh, war crimes have been committed in Aleppo by the Russian military. You, you, you testified that uh, the Russian uh, government has helped Assad murder his own people. Uh, in the Philippines, you acknowledged that uh, the current president of the Philippines has conducted human, involved in, in a extrajudicial killings uh, that violate human rights. And, and of course, you acknowledged that the Human Rights Council of the United Nations uh, you've called into question their legitimacy because of not just their membership, but their pattern of behavior over the last uh, forever. And, um, and therefore, I, I imagine by extension, believe that we should consider returning to the Bush policy of not uh, being a part of it. From your testimony, yet did I, I know you also understand, as you said in your testimony, you have to be able to work with countries all over the world at the right. Security Council and the General Assembly. Um, on critical issues. So I take it and gather from both your testimony, from all this testimony, that if confirmed as the ambassador to the United Nations, you're going to have to deal with countries whose behavior uh, is, uh, violates human rights and, and international law, and yet you believe it's possible to speak to truth to those countries and their horrendous human rights records, and yet still negotiate with them on issues of importance at the Security Council when necessary. Absolutely. I don't think we should ever apologize for the American values, and I don't think we should ever shy away from talking about them. At the same time, I think it's very important that when in negotiating with other countries and when we're dealing with them, they know exactly where we stand. They know where we support and agree. They know where we disagree, and they also know what our, our intended goals are in terms of working together. And that's what I've had to do as governor. That's what you do when you deal with legislators and, and international officials, and I think that's what we'll be doing there. But I don't think that we have to compromise one to get the other. I think we make sure that we always stand firm and strong for what we believe in. And uh, on an unrelated topic, in March of 2015 and many times afterwards, our current Secretary of State told this Senate that the Iran nuclear deal would not be legally binding on the United States. Yet, uh, the outgoing administration attempted to use the United Nations, in particular the Security Council through Resolution 2231, to go around Congress on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and attempt, uh, as they claim, to create a binding legal obligation under 
what they claim to be international law related to a flawed Iran nuclear deal. I would first ask, what is your view of this use of the Security Council to go around Congress, and in particular to go around the Senate's constitutional role to provide advice and consent on treaties? Well, I think I've been on record that I think that it was a huge disappointment. I think that it was created more of a threat, and I think that um, we are going to have to do a lot of things to fix what's happened. If, if confirmed, would you advise the President-elect never to use the United Nations to try to circumvent Congress, especially the Senate, on international agreements? Yes, I would, because I think Congress and Senate are extremely important that we work together with the UN to make sure that anything that's proposed is always um, supported by Congress as we go forward. And uh, this is related to one of your answers, but I think for a point of clarification, because I know you were asked about the recent Security Council resolution with regards to Israel and the Palestinian question, uh, I think it's, and I think you recognize that as part of that agreement, it assumed, uh, for example, that portions of Jerusalem are occupied territory, that portions of Jerusalem are therefore, by definition, settlements. Uh, I believe you would agree when I say that Jerusalem is not a settlement. Right. I and, agree. And that, uh, and then, so uh, uh, you continue to see, it's important to understand, and I think that's what the chairman was getting at when he talked about some dispute over the meaning of that resolution, that it in fact assumed and accepted as fact the notion that basically any Israeli presence in Judea and Samaria constitutes a settlement. And, uh, and so I, I think that's the, the key point. Uh, and I also think it's not true to say that this is the longstanding policy of the U.S. to somehow try to organize and utilize international organisms to force a negotiation. What has in fact been a bipartisan commitment, and I think certainly what our partners in Israel would like to see, is a negotiation between the two parties involved with assistance from the international community as a forum, potentially, but certainly not by pre-imposing conditions and the like. And I, I, I guess my question, you've already answered this. Had you been the UN ambassador and had been asked to uh, abstain on a vote of this kind, uh, would you have agreed to do so? I would never have abstained. I don't like when legislators abstain. Um, I certainly think that it has to be a huge exception when you do abstain. I think that that was the moment that we should have told the world how we stand with Israel, and it was a kick in the gut that we didn't. Well, I thank you, and I just uh, would close by pointing out that uh, the United Nations uh, actually came about as a result of the work of uh, someone from Tennessee, the former senator from Tennessee, uh, uh, Cordell Hall, so it's appropriate that you're chairing this meeting here today. It all comes back to Tennessee. It always does. <laughs> I, thank you for, uh, I thank you for reminding everyone who's tuned in that that is the case. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, and thank I know, you, uh, I would just say I know that y'all have a, uh, a special relationship for lots of reasons and haven't been involved here. Senator Cardin and I were talking earlier and uh, there's some things that you have, you have very good instincts and you've been a governor and um, I think going into an organization that needs reform, having been a governor, someone who solves problems is something that's gonna be very useful. I would also say that this committee at large has spent a lot of time in places all around the world and has an understanding of things that coming into this uh, may be somewhat new to you and I think the committee as a whole, um, if you utilize it, can be very useful to you as you undertake uh, what you're gonna be undertaking at the United Nations. And I think everyone here, especially as they've seen you in operation today, uh, would be more than glad to do so.
Well, and I plan on using um, this committee quite a bit and look forward to having you, if confirmed, to the UN so that you can actually speak with the Security Council members and they can hear from you because I think that's hugely important that it's not just me speaking, that they hear from Congress as well and know how important all these issues are to the United States. Thank you again. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks, Governor Haley. Good visiting the other day. Uh, it's we'll always see. nice to talk to a fellow governor. Indeed, we're part of a once a governor, always a governor. That's right, that's right. Uh, authoritarian nations around the world are cracking down on freedom of the press, and that is a freedom that is part of the 1947 UN Declaration of Human Rights. And even nations that are allies, for example, Turkey and Egypt, where we have significant alliances, have seen real declines in press freedom. I think recently a study came out suggesting Turkey may be the principal violator of press freedoms now in the world. What can be done through the UN to promote the, a, a free press around the world? Well, you know, I think the United States um, has always promoted freedom of press, and while those of us that have been in elected office may not always like it, it is the way it's supposed to be. The press has a job to do, and we should allow them to do it. And so I think, again, that goes in with American values that we should talk about that, and that's something that I'd be happy to express. So you agree that efforts to restrict the press would be a clear violation of not just the UN Charter, but American values? Absolutely. And that would include blacklisting members of the press corps whose coverage you don't like, ridiculing individual journalists who are doing Are you doing trying their to jobs. imply something? <laughs> uh, not, not about you. Um, or, or imploring voters not to trust the media. That, that's sort of a violation of our leadership role in trying to promote a free press. Wouldn't you agree? We do always want to encourage free press. Thank you. Um, with respect to Israel-Palestine, you answered a very direct question from Senator Murphy about whether you believe the the long-standing bipartisan uh, U.S. policy with respect to the goal would be a two-state solution between the Jewish state of Israel and an Arab state of Palestine. That was the phraseology of the original 1947 U.S. resolution. To the best of your knowledge, is the Trump administration committed to maintaining that 70-year bipartisan uh, commitment? I have not heard anything different. Okay. If, as U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., there are actions taken by Palestine, violence, incitement, rocket attacks from Gaza, that threaten the prospects of peace. Uh, would you be firm in calling those out? I will be firm in calling out anyone that is trying to disrupt peace around the world. And so if it's Palestinian actions or Israeli actions that you think threaten the bipartisan commitment toward a two-state solution, you wouldn't hesitate to speak out. I think that we will always have those conversations. What forum we have those conversations in may be different, but yes, I will always have those conversations. Okay. Um, this committee forwarded a resolution to the floor last week stating that the U.S. should not allow Security Council actions that would either dictate peace terms or recognize unilateral Palestinian actions, but would instead encourage the parties to find the path forward. And I think it was reported out unanimously. We've all been disappointed by the lack of progress on this issue. How could you use your role as UN ambassador to help find, it may not seem like it's right around the corner, but we always have to be trying to help find a path toward that, toward the achie achieving the goal that we've had for so very long. You know, I think that is as important as it is for the United States to see Israel as an ally. It's just as important for us to want peace in that area. And so I think it's important that we support the two coming to the table, that they continue to have those discussions, and that we encourage other Security Council members, rather than putting forth or allowing resolutions like that, to instead show their support for how they want the two to come together and have those discussions. 
Um, Senator Young asked you a question about, uh, you were having a discussion about Syria and about why there had been insufficient action in Syria, and he pointed out that Russia had over and over again uh, vetoed Security Council resolutions about Syria, and it wasn't really a surprise. It was probably understood that they would veto them, but there's still a value in putting a resolution on the table, even if a Security Council member is going to veto it, just to point out sort of who will stand up for principles and who won't. Uh, we had all this report about Russian effort to influence the American election, and it's not the first time. They did it with respect to Brexit, the Brexit election. There's significant discussion about what they may be doing with respect to the French uh, presidential elections and with elections uh, for the uh, German chancellor as well. Um, would you be willing to speak out for the integrity of nation's electoral processes and work with colleagues to present a Security Council resolution uh, counter Russia for their activity to try to influence the elections of other nations? Yes, Russia or any other country that tried to commit that act. You indicated uh, that you were an opponent of the Iran deal. Would you support the U.S. unilaterally backing out of the Iran deal at this point? I think what would be more beneficial at this point is that we look at all the details of the Iran deal. We see if they are actually in compliance if we find that there are violations, then we act on those violations. And I think that it, and watching that very closely is important. What we did was we gave um, the state sponsor of terrorism a pass that even after 10 years, they will not be held to um, any sort of prohibitions on building nuclear weapons. And, well, we, and, and we gave them billions of dollars to do it. So I believe that if that has passed, and if that is where it is, we need to hold them accountable and watch them as we go forward. I, I would encourage you to read the agreement, because what you just stated about the agreement is quite inaccurate. Um, there are many, many restrictions in the agreement after 10 years, specific restrictions in perpetuity. The first paragraph of the agreement says that Iran, pursuant to the agreement, will never seek to develop, acquire, or uh, otherwise construct a nuclear weapon. So the notion that there's no restrictions after 10 years, I don't know where you got that from. The notion that we gave them money, we didn't give them anything. There was money that was Iran's that had been frozen. We released access so that they could get money that was theirs in exchange for their agreement to restrict their nuclear weapons program and guarantee in perpetuity not only to not have nuclear weapons but allow inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency that accurately uh, reported to this body that Iraq didn't have a nuclear weapons program and we disbelieved them and started a war and found out that they were right. Um, so I would encourage you to read the agreement because if you, th if you think those things, I can see why you were against it yeah. and I can see why you might want to back out of it. But actually, that is a completely inaccurate reflection of the agreement. I would also encourage you to speak to intelligence and military officials in Israel, many of whom now say that they think the agreement is working with respect to the nuclear aspect of Iran's activity. There's other activity that's very troubling that we obviously need to be very aggressive in countering. Uh, that's all I have. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank, Thank you, you, Senator. And I would just say that um, while, yes, I will look into that, what we all need to remember is a nuclear Iran is very dangerous for the entire world. And it is important that we look at all the details of the agreement, which I will do, and make sure that they are actually following through on the promises that were made. I appreciate that. And I think your emphasis was on uh, radically or strongly enforcing the agreement as it sits and, and uh, beginning correct. in that place. Senator, Senator Paul. Oh. Excuse me, Senator Rich. I'm sorry. 
Thank you. Uh, Governor Haley, thank you so much for agreeing to take this on. Uh, my good friend, Senator uh, Kane, uh, I agree with sometimes and sometimes I don't. Um, his uh, description of uh, uh, the uh, wonderfulness of this Iran agreement, in my judgment, is 180 from what the facts are in real life. Uh, one of, the, uh, one of the, the primary objections that a lot of us had to the Iran agreement was something that, uh, that you alluded to, and that is the fact that although a lot of us, both publicly and privately, urged the administration to uh, take Iran by the throat, and if you're going to make them change their behavior, make them change their behavior. You can't take a bad kid in the classroom and say, look, you've been throwing spitballs. You've got to stop that. And the kid says, well, okay, I'll do it. And they say, and not only that, you're also throwing erasers around. What happened? And they say, well, well, the kid says, well, I'm not going to do that, but I will stop throwing the spitballs. You can't do that. These people needed to change their behavior. And they have not changed their behavior. And your uh, characterization of us giving billions of dollars to them uh, that they're going to be able to use to go out and finance terrorism is absolutely accurate. And my friends on the other side had their eyes absolutely closed on that as we went forward. And they were financing terror. They were the world's largest sponsor of terrorism when they were broke. What do you think is going to happen after we've given them billions of dollars? This is going to be awful. So with all due respect to my friends on the other side, and particularly Senator Kane, who I, who, uh, is, uh, who I admire, uh, they're just dead wrong on that issue. Uh, having said that, uh, as far as the Iran deal is concerned, uh, we've got sanctions in place that deal with other things than just the nuclear agreement. And I know a lot of people are just ignoring that, including Iran itself. It's complaining, oh, they're... They're not uh, uh, green, or they're not doing what they're supposed to do on the sanctions, but they forget they're still sponsoring terrorism. They, the, the fact that they launched a missile in absolute uh, contravention of a UN uh, resolution that prohibited that within days after it was signed shows you how they feel about all this. So in any event, uh, don't back down from where you are on that. On that uh, I have keep no intention. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Glad to hear your comments about the reputation and confidence uh, of the UN in America. You know, people on the East Coast don't have an understanding that there is that lack of confidence. Uh, there is uh, uh, a lot of disagreement as far as the UN is concerned. There are places in America uh, where the where units of government have passed resolutions that declare their area UN free zone. That's how strongly they feel about uh, the lack of confidence uh, in the UN. I want, to f I want to focus uh, uh, for a minute on something I think that's incredibly important. Senator Rubio uh, talked about it with you, and I want to underscore that. And that is this business of thinking that somehow the, f the second branch of government can bind America. Uh, probably the, the poster child for that is the Paris uh, Agreement. I keep, you know, my good friends on the other side and the media and everybody keeps saying, well, it's in violation of the Paris Agreement. There is no America, uh, no American bound by one word, the Paris Agreement, simply because the president signed it. And it, when you talk to the, particularly when you talk to the foreign media, they just, they, their eyes just uh, go round and round. They say, well, well, the president signed it. They don't understand that we have three branches of government, and the, the head of the second branch of government is just that. Uh, the first branch of government has, uh, has the power of the purse strings, and the job of the second branch of government is to execute the laws that we, that we pass and to oversee the spending that, that we authorize. To somehow think that the second branch can create law and bind Americans to uh, a law that, uh, that has not been approved by Congress is, uh, is outrageous. 
the, the provision in the Constitution that says that all treaties, before they can become effective, have got to be approved by this, this body is incredibly important. And I hope, uh, and, and I know that you'll take that uh, with you when you go uh, to the UN and underscore that whenever the second branch starts talking about going off on their own. We are much stronger. We are much stronger if we have our, uh, all of our branches of government uh, in, in support of those kinds of things. So uh, that, I, I, I can't stress that enough. Uh, in the last administration, we've had really nothing but disdain for this, uh, for this, this provision in the Constitution which says that we have the power to either ratify or not ratify an agreement with a foreign power. Let me, let me just close here. Um, uh, with, with and, and I don't mean this to sound the way that it does. You did make the statement that says, well, sanctions by us alone don't work. Uh, I want to, uh, our experience uh, on this committee and, and on the intelligence committee I sit on, I can tell you that sanctions by us alone do work. Now, I will agree with you, they don't work nearly as well as we got everybody on board. But because of our control over the financial and banking sectors, on this earth, we can really have some substantial effect by ourselves. When you get right up against it, if we put sanctions on, other countries, other banking institutions are gonna have to make a choice. Are they gonna deal with American institutions or are they gonna deal with Iranian institutions or whatever country we're talking about? And that always resolves in our favor. It has to resolve in our favor. So I just ask you to modify that and say that uh, that uh, indeed they will work better if everybody's on. And if I could clarify, sanctions sure. obviously do work. I just think they work better if we have allies with Absolutely us. Absolutely, no do question that. about it. And, and that that was one of our that was one of our objections too. And, to and the, then the second thing is that sanctions have to be enforced. That, absolutely, they have to be enforced aggressively. That was one of our objections also to the to the Iran deal. They kept talking about these snapback provisions. Well, I want to see all these heroes try to put that genie back in the bottle and and snap back. Uh, that's just flat not going to happen. We're going to have to rely on on our own sanctions if we get to that point. And I, for one, am, am ready to do that. Thanks for agreeing to do this. I think you're going to be a great ambassador to, to the United Nations. We Thank really appreciate it. Thank you very it. much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Governor, our, uh, our negotiating strength at the UN depends on having our allies standing with us. This weekend, President-elect Trump gave an interview to European journalists in which he uh, undermined that unity by yet again disparaging NATO as obsolete and threatening to start a trade war with the European Union. Last week, uh, General James Mattis, President-elect Trump's nominee for Secretary of Defense, testified that President Putin, quote, is trying to break the North Atlantic Alliance and noted that if uh, we did not have NATO today, we would need to create it. Do you agree with President-elect Trump that NATO is obsolete, or do you agree with General Mattis? Uh, that it is vital. I think NATO is an important alliance for us to have, and now we need more allies than ever, and we need more alliances than we've ever had, and I think it's one that we need to strengthen. So what would you say to our allies about the need for us to stay, stay together uh, in our resistance to especially the Russian um, uh, attempts to uh, destroy 
of that alliance. Well, I think that's a great question because I, you will see me, if confirmed, all over the UN, making sure that they understand the importance of alliances and allies and working together where we can for the greater good. Yep, uh, there, there are some that wish to have the United States placating Russia, you know, making concessions to Russia that go right at the core of what the key alliance that NATO represents has been providing as security for the world for generations. Um, and from my perspective, but I think from the United States perspective generally, um, NATO is not only not obsolete, it's essential. It's the key to making sure that Russia understands that there is no room on a partisan basis that exists in our country in terms of our commitment to resisting you know, Russian incursion. So from my perspective, you're, I'm glad to hear your answer, and I thank you uh, for it. Um, on the question of, uh, of uh, global health, um, in Haiti, I talked to you about this in my office yesterday, um, the United Nations peacekeeping force from Nepal actually introduced cholera into a country that had never had cholera before in uh, the year 2010, after the earthquake in Haiti. Uh, 800,000 people uh, have contracted cholera, 9,000 have died from it. It was created by a Nepal, a, a Nepal peacekeeping UN mission that actually brought that disease to the country by their uh, uh, introduction of it into the water system uh, with their own human waste. Um, thus far, there has been no real UN financial commitment to cleaning up the sanitation system in that country so that uh, they don't have to worry that every time a hurricane comes through like it did in October of 2016, that it just once again raises up this cholera issue. Can you talk a little bit about what you feel the United Nations responsibility is to countries like Haiti, where the peacekeeping mission has in fact uh, wound up creating more harm than any that was ever reduced by the introduction of that peacekeeping mission? Yes, sir, Senator, thank you for that question. I will tell you um, what happened in Haiti is just nothing short of devastating. And it is the reason why I think every peacekeeping mission needs to be looked at thoroughly to make sure that things are moving in the right direction. But it's also why I think it's so important that the contributing countries take responsibility and take actions against those violators that are doing anything to harm the people that they're supposed to be protecting. And so I think that was a terrible problem. And so we have to acknowledge the fact that um, there were peacekeepers involved in that, that there were peacekeepers that contributed to that. And it is really that action that I think we can use to show that these contributing countries have to stand up and take responsibility and be accountable for those causes that they happen to do during peace missions. Um, and you would argue for increased financial commitment from the countries around the world so that that funding could go into Haiti in order to help with their um, sanitation system? Those violating countries need to be held accountable, I and they need to have that responsibility of resolving that problem. The, yes. the problem is that Nepal does not have the uh, financial capacity to remediate the problem, but they actually created the problem in the name of all the countries in the world that are part of the United Nations. So it would be necessary to ensure that all of the other countries that use um, the Nepalese uh, military as their agent to then be held accountable as well financially. 
Right, and there's two things, and I don't know if you were in the room when I said it. I think that one, it's very important that we get other countries to contribute to our peacekeeping missions because they have to have skin in the game. Because when these things happen, they will help the United States be more accountable, hold these peacekeepers more accountable, hold these contributing countries more accountable, and we should decide, should we use their peacekeepers again? Because I think that's another conversation that needs to be had. We're going to have to make this right with Haiti, without question. And the UN is going to have to take responsibility, and I hope that we can have peacekeeping reform in the process while we do that. Yeah, thank you. 85% um, of the Security Council's peacekeeping personnel actually serve in Africa. Yes. Uh, and the UN is deeply involved in ending conflict there. Uh, but much of the conflict is caused by poverty. It's caused by disease. Um, President Bush uh, initiated a program, PEPFAR, mm -hmm. uh, to deal with the HIV AIDS epidemic in, um, in Africa. Uh, Mr. Tillerson testified last week about his strong support for that uh, program and, uh, and, uh, and pointed out that it should be um, continued and enhanced. Could you talk a little bit about how you view uh, the PEPFAR program in terms of going forward in the future and the funding levels that would be needed to make it the success it has been thus far. I think PEPFAR, you can look at the results and see the success. You can look at the numbers and the lives that have been affected by that. And I think it's a it's one of the successful programs that happened at the United Nations, and I certainly would continue to support it going forward. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Senator Paul. Governor Haley, congratulations Thanks. on your nomination. Uh, James Madison wrote that the executive branch is the branch of government most prone to war. Therefore, the Constitution, with studied care, vested that power in the legislature. In the days of our founding fathers, it was very important who had that power, you know, distributed among the U.S. government. I don't think they ever conceived of an international body compelling the U.S. to go to war. Um, I still think it's an incredibly important debate, and we've lost a little bit of this. We let presidents go to war willy-nilly without much oversight at all. We've still not voted on the current war in the Middle East. So my question to you is, will you vote for any UN resolution that commits U.S. soldiers to war or to a war or to a battle zone uh, that has not been authorized by Congress? Well, and thank you, Senator, for that question, because I think it's an important one. First of all, I think that as we go forward with all the threats that we have in the world, understand that you're talking to a military wife and a military sister, um, where both of them have been in combat. And I think that we have to really be careful if we're going to decide to go to war. But I also think that if we decide to go to war, it is important that we have the president-elect, the National Security Council, Congress, everyone moving in the same direction in order to do that. It will show our strength in the world when we do that. It will also give confidence to those military families that everyone is in agreement that we're doing the right thing. And so I think it's in the best interest of us, regardless of partisanship or anything else, to make sure that we all stand in agreement if we decide to show military influence. Uh, you know, I agree with the sentiment. I'm not sure if we got to the specifics of would you vote for a resolution to send our soldiers, a U.N. resolution, to a war that hadn't been authorized by the U.S.? And I think that probably the best answer I can give you is that um, as a member of the National Security Council, I would encourage them to make sure that they had had these conversations with Congress and that they have Congress's buy-in before we interfere. In I would go other. one step 
farther in the sense that many say, well, we should have the advice of Congress, and we ought to occasionally go down there and pat them on the back and talk to them. No, no, the rules are pretty specific. We don't go to war, really, unless Congress votes on war. We, and the reason I bring this up is we may well be in a situation, uh, we're in war right now, with primarily with ISIS in, in Syria and Iraq. That war has not been authorized. We've had no vote here on whether or not we should be involved in that war. Some try to stretch a resolution that said we could go after those who attacked us on 9-11. ISIS did not attack us on 9-11. They're not related in any way to anybody who attacked us on 9-11. Right. So it, we have had no vote. And one generation shouldn't bind another generation to war. But that well could come before you. Right now we're at war. You could say, well, we're already at war. We can send people there in the UN banner. Well, you shouldn't. I mean, we should say to you, you should not vote for that. You should come back to us and say, I'll vote for it gladly after Congress does their job and authorizes. But no U.S. soldier should ever fight under any international banner without a vote here by Congress. And I can't state that strong enough because that is a check. That is a check and a balance to try to prevent unnecessary war. There's a, a bill floating around to try to uh, withhold UN dues uh, until the, um, the vote on the UN uh, on the Israel se settlements is reversed. Without asking you specifically on that, what do you think of the concept of withholding UN dues uh, based on uh, UN behavior? Well, Senator, I don't believe in the slash and burn approach. You know, as a governor, you could never do that. That's not effective. Um, I know many legislators will put bills out out of frustration, and I absolutely understand the frustration over Resolution 2334, but I think it's important that we are strategic in the way that we hold dues. So yes, I do see a place where you can hold dues. I do think it needs to be strategic in nature. I would want to use Congress as my heavy and leverage in terms of doing that so that I could get members of the council to do the things that we needed to do. But yes, I do think there are times where you can withhold dues. I don't think you should slash and cut across the board because I don't think that will accomplish the goal. And, and finally, the, the general concept of U.S. sovereignty is important to many of us. You've heard from some of the other members uh, about, you know, whether a U.N. resolution instructs the, uh, us legally. Um, and I would say only if uh, approved by Congress, that uh, really there is no supersedence of U.N. resolutions over U.S. law. And I think that's important because we can go to war through the U.N., but we can do a lot of things through the U.N. that uh, really need to be approved by Congress. Not as a consultation, not as, hey, here's what we're doing, guys. No, it's coming to us and asking permission because we are directly responsible to the people as well. And it is a check and balance. And I hope as you become the UN ambassador, and I will support you, but as you become the UN ambassador, I hope you will consider that and that some of these questions aren't, you know, simple questions, but they're incredibly profound questions. And whether or not when we go to war and when we don't go to war, as you know, you have family members that will fight in these wars. You know, war's the last resort, so we don't make it easy. None of the founding fathers didn't want to make it easy to go to war. They wanted to make right. it difficult. And then we go through consensus. But we don't go through consensus if the UN takes us to war. And I have a great deal of sympathy. There's a, a, a young man who is uh, currently suing the U.S. military, saying it's an unlawful order for him to take an order from the United Nations uh, because it's a war that's not, you know, or a war that's not been authorized here. And I have some sympathy for that. Um, so I hope you'll continue to uh, ponder that and, and how important it is that uh, we maintain the checks and balances of how we go to war. And I strongly believe of the importance of 
um, should I be confirmed, the UN always working with Congress and Congress always having um, that sort of element to be able to make those decisions as we go forward. Thank you. Thank you for those sentiments. Uh, Senator Markley. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank you, Governor, for appearing today. It's a, a pleasure to hear you talk about these challenging issues in the world and the, what is ahead of us. I wanted to start out with a, a topic that we conversed about some in my office, and that's the, the challenge of, of North Korea, its nuclear weapon development program, and its missile program, ballistic missile program. And specifically, what, what do you think that we should do more in regard to heading off the continued development of the missiles and the, and the weapons? I actually think we need to have a lot of conversations with a lot of other countries, and that comes from the fact that um, North Korea is trying to exercise their muscle right now, and they're trying to show their strength. And I think that while we have seen China start to pull away, we need to talk to China and let them know of the threat. We need to talk to other countries within the area and let them know of how strong of a threat this is. And we need to try and create a united front in approaching North Korea, because North Korea will feel it if China puts the pressure on them. And I think that's very, very important, because it is getting to a very dangerous situation. So, Governor, uh, last year in January, there was a fourth nuclear weapon test by North Korea and then in February, a major ballistic missile test. And within less than a month of that, uh, the United States was able to get China to agree to increased sanctions on, on North Korea. That included mandatory inspection of all cargo going to and from North Korea, and a requirement to terminate all banking relationships, and it lays out a whole. And that, that came out exactly the type of pressure you're, you're talking about. But that, that resolution, 2270, uh, do you think that was a step forward in terms of that U.S., China, and the world saying to North Korea, you've got to stop? Absolutely, if followed. And that's the thing is they're not following that. And so actions need to happen from there. So, and then there was another nuclear test that followed that is, uh, in September, the fifth nuclear test. And the U.S. again went to work to really try to get the international community and China to, to push on North Korea. And what they did was put a hard binding cap on North Korea's coal exports. This was considered to be the single most vulnerable point of, of pressure because it's their largest source of external revenue. And uh, China did sign up and, and America signed up and we've got this uh, mandatory inspections in place and is that too a, a step forward in terms of pressuring North Korea? Absolutely. But as you pointed out, we've, we've done this, and then North Korea goes ahead anyway. And so in terms of the conversation, China has said it's on board. It's agreed to this, this uh, cut all the banking relationships, uh, inspect every piece of cargo, um, cut their, their ability to generate revenue. Is there, should we specifically draw any sort of red line over the missile tests or the, or the nuclear weapon tests? And if so, what, what would that be? Well, obviously, that's a conversation I need to have with the National Security Council as well as with the president-elect. But I do think this warrants very strong conversations with China to say that um, this is a slap in the face to China. This is a slap in the face to every country that told North Korea they were not to proceed. And the fact that they are doing it anyway should be offensive to all countries that involved in sanctions. And so I think that we do need to see where do we go forward. Well, I'll be very interested in, in hearing more of your thoughts uh, after you're at the UN. 
uh, because we've been using the UN really aggressively on, on this particular topic. And, and I, even as I went back after our conversation, I was surprised at the amount that had been done that I, I wasn't aware of when we, when we talked in my office. Uh, turning to, to China, China has dramatically increased its engagement in, in the UN. In 2003, they didn't really have any UN peacekeeping troops, and then they increased it to 2,000, more recently 3,000. Now they've made a pledge to contribute 8,000 troops. Uh, and it's not clear to me if that's 8,000 on top of the 3,000 or 8,000 uh, total. Uh, but they are now the third overall contributor to the UN. They are the second all overall contributor to fund peacekeepers, and they are the first overall contributor to peacekeepers among the permanent five. Uh, members of the Security Council. So they have, they have vastly, they've, they've really moved in there. And one of the concerns, and it's related to several questions that were asked about whether the U.S. essentially holds its monetary support of the U.N. hostage, one of the concerns has been that China would love for us to do that. Because then they go from being almost at the top of the heap to being at the top of the heap in terms of their, their influence on the, on the organizations. Do you share the concern about China's kind of growing uh, expansion of its power inside the UN? I think that you have to look at, and this is a lot of what we discussed yesterday, you have to look at the fact that China is very different from Russia. Russia is trying to show their military strength. China is trying to show their economic strength. So their strategy is to go and help other countries, to build infrastructure in other countries, to buy favor with them, and to try and take over that way. So whereas Russia looks at military force, China looks at economic force. And we need to realize that. And it's a lesson to the United States that we need to strategically understand that the funding needs to be used as a force the same way China does. And I absolutely agree that we have to keep an eye on China and the funding and the way they're engaging in these other countries because they are trying to um, add to their allies list. And we need to be conscious of that. Well, this is part of an enduring discussion about tactics in, in the United States to the degree we have an outside game and, and pressure the UN by, by saying, you did wrong and we're going to hold you hostage on different programs or we have an inside game of diplomacy, communication, relationship building, the type of inside game actually that led to those two major resolutions in regard to, to North Korea. You'll obviously be a captain of the, of the inside game and, and uh, I look forward to uh, um, learning more from your viewpoints as that unfolds. Thank you. In my last few seconds, turning to uh, the global warming, the National Intelligence Council has said that climate change is a wide-ranging national security challenge for the U.S. over the next 20 years. Do you share the, the view that global warming is a security threat to the United States? I think it is one of the threats, yes. I don't think it's the most important, but I do think it is on the table. One of the widely discussed issues is, is how it affected the refugees that moved into the Syrian cities, uh, sparking the Syrian civil war. Uh, are you familiar with that chain of events, and and you consider that an example of how climate change can trigger a chain of events that cause a lot of security concerns and impacts in the world? I think there are many countries that look at climate change and what their effects are on all types of acts of um, elements in the world, and so that's why I think it'll always be something on the table that we look at and always something that we consider. Again, as we had the conversation yesterday, I think we have to make sure that um, we continue to look at it and keep it as a strong element, but not to the burdens of industry and the economy as we go forward. My time has expired. Thank, Thank you, you, Senator.
Thank you. It would be my observation that while the UN Security Council may have been active on the North Korean issue, the members themselves, uh, China is not uh, living to the letter of sanctions that have taken place. Had they been doing so, we might be in a slightly different place. Uh, but I agree that uh, there may be some unilateral actions at some point uh, that need to take place. Um, Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations. Great to see you thank again. Thank you very much. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, the last questioner just used the phrase, we're using the UN aggressively. And I think this last administration has actually been using the UN aggressively to bypass Congress, to support Iran, to uh, attack our closest ally, Israel, to uh, attack American energy. So the question to you is, as our nation's top representative at the United Nations, uh, I think you have to be committed to standing up for American ideals, American values, our standards. So can you talk a little bit about that, about uh, your commitment to challenging the actions of the United Nations that run counter to our values, our interests, our ideals? You know, I, and I think that that's a very good question because the United Nations, I think, has overstepped. And when you look at Resolution 2334, there is no better example of how they've overstepped. And I think that there is a role for the United Nations. And I think that is in negotiating deals, in telling what our story is, in talking about America's values and ideals and freedoms and what makes us the best country in the world. And we need to continue to use the UN Forum to show what we are for, what we are against, and what we won't tolerate. But having said that, I think that the UN is not a place to insert into what other countries do and is not a place to actually take action without um, Congress having a strong support of it or without the President-elect and the National Security Council. Uh, because we are the largest financial contributor to the United Nations. When you take a look at our nation, our, our contribution is more to the UN budget than all of the other permanent members of the UN Security Council combined. Yes. And we have an incredible debt in this country that I continue to uh, hear about. They say, why are we spending money at the United Nations with this kind of debt? So can you talk a little bit about uh, your commitment to safeguarding U.S. taxpayer dollars at the UN and the kind of transparency that we really need to uh, with regard to those funds. Well, thank you, Senator. And in South Carolina, that was something that was very important to me because I think transparency breeds accountability, and that needs to happen. We do pay 22% of the general fund. Um, we are close to 29% on the peacekeeping fund, which is actually um, not what the law requires. We're supposed to be at 25%, and I think that when you look at that, Every organization in government can always be improved and can always be efficient. And the way you get to that is through transparency. And we need to start showing how the money in peacekeeping is being spent. We need to start showing the programs that are happening in the United Nations and how that's being handled. I think that there was um, good progress made in that they had um, Inspector General Oversight come in, but I think that's not independent. And it's, as long as it's not independent, we're not getting the true facts there. So that's something that I'll also try and do is, is try and make that oversight uh, council more independent so that no countries can weigh in on that, so we can actually get to the heart of how we can fix the UN and make it more effective. Can, can I just stay on the issue of the UN peacekeepers for a second? Because there have been horrendous reports of sexual exploitation and abuses being committed by the peacekeepers. Um, it's unacceptable, it's outrageous that the United Nations peacekeepers are inflicting terrible atrocities on the people they're supposed to be protecting. Um, you know, as the largest contributor of money, all of the things. Can you talk a little bit about working to ensure that the United Nations holds these, uh, 
these peacekeepers uh, accountable uh, in ways from the, from the sort of things that we've been seeing with uh, sexual exploitation and abuse? Yes, Senator, and I spoke about this earlier. I think it is devastating when you have a child or you have a mother who see peacekeepers and are afraid. And that is something that can never happen. And I think that we absolutely have to strengthen the whistleblower protections because it is not working. People are too scared to speak up when they see something wrong. I think that we have to really <clears throat> make sure that we are holding our contributing countries accountable because when their um, troops violate, we can't just let them give them a pass. They have to actually be um, dealt with accordingly, and then in some cases we have to look at whether that country should be providing peacekeepers at all, because a lot of times they're doing it just to make money, and it's not about whether they're protecting people. And when someone goes in from the UN, and when they present themselves, people should feel safe, and people should feel protected. They should not be scared, and they not, should not be leery of what's happening. And we can't say that right now. And so, I, especially in, in the peacekeeping missions in Africa, so I do think very, very important that that we start to really hold these countries accountable and let them know. And that is why I think them putting money, more money towards peacekeeping, will have skin in the game. And when they have skin in the game, they'll care more about how their money's spent. And so I think that's true for the general fund as well as the peacekeeping fund. And I want to get back to Resolution 2334. And I think that's just part of an ongoing strategy to undermine our, friend, our friends in, in Israel. The, uh, you know, in 2011, UNESCO voted to admit Palestine as a member state in the organization. Right. And it, it triggered a law that we have in the United States cutting off contributions to UNESCO. Could you talk a little bit about the United States in terms of opposing Palestinian efforts to obtain full membership at any UN agency or organization? Absolutely, because we don't recognize the Palestinian Authority as a state. And I think that we will not, whether it's funding UNESCO and the fact that we stopped that, I think that was a good move to do that. Or whether it's something where they're trying to insert themselves to be a member, which they tried to do. Um, and I think that now we have to make sure that we continue to hold that ground on that on that front. And I think that there are more and more attempts to try and do that. So far they have failed, but we have to make sure that we do that because I do think they're still getting in through resolutions and mm -hmm. issues that are happening. And that's all the more reason why we have to stand strong. Well, I appreciate your attention. Thank you very much, Governor. Thank you. Thank very you, Mr. Much. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, just to, to understand the state of play, um, I had not planned to have a second round but there was an email exchange with one of our staff members that indicated that was a possibility, and I think the minority has understood that to be, that there will be, um, because I do want to conduct always our business um, with an air of trust. Um, we will have, for some few members who wish to have a second round, a five-minute round. I don't know of anything that, uh, is controversial that's occurred. I would just ask members to respect the fact that it wasn't something that I intended, but if you really have something that you want to ask in order to maintain trust, um, we'll have a second round um, for those few members who may have questions. I would ask their nominee, who's um, been here now for three hours, uh, would you like to take a 10-minute break? No, sir, I'm ready to continue. Okay, well. Uh, Senator, Coons, Senator Coons will finish his uh, first round of questioning, and if other members do in fact have questions, we, I would remind folks that we are going to have QFRs, and those will be due as of the close of business yes, uh, tomorrow, but uh, 
with that, we'll continue on and, and plow through this. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker. Welcome, uh, Governor Haley. I enjoyed our conversation yesterday, and I was encouraged to hear in your opening statement that you think U.S. leadership is essential in the world uh, and that you look forward to being a strong voice for both American principles and American interests at the U.N. Um, and I recognize that, as you said, international diplomacy is a new area for you. Um, we talked about the transition from county executive to senator, from governor to potentially U.N. ambassador. Um, let's talk about the U.N. Security Council and some of the, the challenges we face there and some of the interests that other countries bring to play there. Um, we talked yesterday about uh, the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, um, and why Russia and China worked with us on imposing and enforcing multilateral sanctions, negotiating uh, to a finished deal, and then uh, to enforcing it. Um, and another member uh, asked you earlier about uh, why the UN Security Council hasn't been able to make progress uh, in challenging or confronting Assad's uh, war crimes against his own people. Um, do you have a clear understanding uh, of what might be driving these two issues at this point? Well, first of all, with the Iran deal, the fact that um, Russia and China were supportive is the red flag that I need to know that it there's a problem with the deal. And I think that we have to be very conscious of that. I also think that as we deal with Syria, we've got to start seeing something that happens. You can't turn on the TV and see what's happening to children and women and all of those that are just trying to live being dealt with that way. And so I think we're seeing terrible things that happen. And when, again, you see Russia protecting Syria and Russia protecting these issues that are happening, it's dangerous. And it's something that we need to be very conscious of because right now it's not about protecting human life. I think it's very much about making sure they're protecting their own interests. And that's not what America is. We value human life. So, and these were questions I told you yesterday I'd follow up on again today. Let me make sure I understand your answer. Is it clear to you that the reason the Security Council hasn't acted to confront uh, human rights violations in Syria is because Russia blocks that action? Yes, it is clear. Um, why does it raise a red flag for you that uh, Russia and China supported uh, the JCPOA, the Iran deal, if the United Kingdom and Germany and the EU and, and other vital American allies, France, uh, did so as well. Um, are you questioning the value of our international partnerships with them? And let me ask the follow-on question. If we walk away from it without giving it a chance to be fully implemented, will we be safer? Well, first of all, I think that it is in our best interest to be distrustful of all countries as we move forward as they are distrustful of us. That is just us protecting American interests. And so when you look at Russia, um, you should always know that there is an angle that they're trying to do. The same with China, and they are all playing strategy, and that's part of what they continue to do. With the Iran deal, what I said, as I said to you yesterday, I think it is very important that we look at every aspect of the Iran deal and see if it is being followed. And if it is not being followed, and if we do find violations, then I think we should act, and I think we should act strongly. And I think you'll find um, strong bipartisan partners here in insisting on its uh, vigorous enforcement. Uh, I do encourage you to read the details of the deal uh, because it does have longer term and more binding consequences uh, than a previous answer you gave uh, may suggest. Um, let me also, if I could, um, before we turn to UN reform, ask you about Russia and your view of, of Russia. Um, the number of the recent statements by the president-elect uh, have unsettled uh, a number of our allies and, and a number of us. Um, and he has in some ways suggested that if we reach a much closer 
relationship uh, with Russia. It could break the logjam at the Security Council. It could make progress in the fight against terrorism. Many of our allies ask, what's on the table? So in your view, um, what should be on the table if there were some closer arrangement with Russia? Would you ever accept recognizing their illegal annexation of Crimea? No, I, I think that we need to make it very clear with Russia on where we stand on Crimea and Ukraine and Syria and be strong on that. Having said that, it's very much like we talk about human rights violations. We may not agree with a country on human rights violations, but we need to work with them on other things. I think what the president-elect is trying to do is see, are there any opportunities to work with Russia? Because we can use Russia's help in trying to go against ISIS, and we can use Russia's help on trying to help with other threats throughout the world. And That's so I, right. I think we have vital allies in NATO, such as the Germans, the French, the Brits, who have gone alongside us and fought in Afghanistan, who have invoked Article 5 of NATO Charter and stood alongside us in the fight against terrorism. I have real trouble with his idea that on, in any way we should view, uh, we should trust Vladimir Putin and his Russia at an equal level as uh, Angela Merkel and Germany uh, when we and all of our NATO allies, his ongoing steady diminution of the value of NATO, uh, when NATO has been the strongest, most important, most enduring alliance uh, we've built and been a part of. Ambassador Power gave a very pointed farewell speech yesterday um, where she laid out the case that Russia is the single greatest threat to the world order today, to the world order that we've built, the so-called liberal rules-based world order that the UN is one of the highest examples of. Did you read or follow that speech? I did not. Um, I urge you to do so. Uh, I will. I, think I have is been a, working towards this committee assignment, so I have not had the time to do that, but I will make a point to do that. Mr. Chairman, I'll ask that it be admitted to the record, entered into the record, because I, I, I think it is a very clear-eyed assessment of just how persistent a threat Russia has been to our core values, which I would argue are our core interests, free press, democracy, human rights, uh, and uh, our vital NATO alliance. And Senator, um, just to be clear, we, we agree on that. We agree on Russia, and I know that your concerns over the comments of the president-elect are probably best suited to ask him as opposed to me. But he's not in front of me, and you are, so forgive me. <laughs> and you're not getting any answers from me on that, so I'm just telling you in, in the importance of time. Um, about uh, UN reform, um, if we were to simply, as some have suggested, in order to punish the UN for the Security Council taking a vote, which I think we have unanimously um, opposed, if we were to simply cut funding to the UN, um, would that strengthen or weaken our hand in defending Israel at the UN? Well, as I've said, it is you can never win with slash and burn techniques. That doesn't work. Um, what is important is that we do strategic um, types of cutting if we're going to cut anything at all. And so I don't agree with that. I don't think that that's the way that we can come out strong and show our um, strength in terms of what we believe in and what we're against. And I think it's better to do that with negotiations than I do think with just slash and burn. Well, let me commend to you, and I'll close and then and come back for another round briefly if I could. Let me commend to you that the new Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, I think will be a strong partner for you in engaging in thoughtful and systemic reform. And our vital ally, the United Kingdom, um, does have a multilateral aid effectiveness review, a process that they go through to look at the return on investment, as you've put it, or the effectiveness of their contributions. And they have assessed many of the U.S. voluntary funded programs as having a high impact. Uh, I'd recommend that to you uh, for your reading, and I look forward to asking you some more questions in a few minutes. Thank you very much. The uh, statements uh, by Samantha Power will be, without objection, entered into the record. It would be my observation that uh, 
sometimes even our closest friends have different interests. And if you remember, there were 58 senators, I think, that opposed the Iran deal. Unfortunately, by virtue of it being done the way that it was, that many people have alluded to, it was done by an executive agreement at the UN Security Council. But our friends in Germany and Great Britain and France had mercantile interest that uh, caused them to support an agreement that allowed them to do business with Iran, uh, in addition to other issues. And again, I would say that 58 senators here disagreed with them uh, on the efficacy of this agreement. So we sometimes disagree even with our closest friends. Senator Cardin. And, and Mr. Chairman, thank you for the courtesy on, on the second round. And uh, Governor Haley, thank you for your strength to continue through. Oh, there's a lot more strength. That Good. I'm, you're going to need it, the United <laughs> Nations. So I'm the best to you. I, I want to take my time to go over a few issues that were covered in the first round. You've mentioned frequently that we want other countries to have skin in the game as it relates to peacekeepers and the importance of the peacekeeping missions. I just really want to point out that in 2016 alone, 79 UN peacekeepers lost their life in service to humanity. So countries have skin in the game. We have used mostly resources, money, and there is the ability to pay issue among different states. I don't disagree, and I included in my opening comments, my concern about the sexual exploitation and abuse that cannot be tolerated. And we do need more countries participating. But I just wanted to point out that countries have given their, their, their people, and some have lost their lives in support of our peace. And I have great respect for that. Mine uh, my wording was about monetary. Well, some countries can't afford the monetary aid, and that's why they use their people, and they, they, they subsidize that uh, through that way. But secondly, I, I want to just respond to what you did in South Carolina in regards to uh, Syrian refugees. I don't question the way that you responded based upon the information given to you by the FBI, but I just really want to set the record straight here about the vetting process used for Syrian refugees. It is the most strict vetting process of any coming into America. I think we've had somewhere around 13,000 settled through the Syrian refugee program, far less than our pro rata share by any um, reasonable allocation. And there's been no problems that I am aware of for any Syrian refugees who've come to this country. Most, of course, are women and children. And in fact, you look at the refugee program, which you were complimentary of. Yes. Between 1975 and 2015, over 3 million refugees have come to America. And it's my understanding there have been three specific episodes of terrorist involvement with those three that have led to convictions. That's three too many, don't get me wrong. And we just mean zero, and we gotta continue the strict vetting. But it's not the risk pool that, uh, that maybe is popularly perceived by refugees coming to America. And I just really wanted to correct the record in that regard. I want to underscore one or two points, uh, one dealing with war crimes. You've acknowledged that what has happened in Syria is elevated to war crimes. Not only has it been what we saw in Aleppo, which was absolutely outrageous, but the use of chemical weapons, which has also been confirmed, which in and of itself would be war crimes. I just want to make sure that you are focused on not only calling it war crimes, but using the United Nations Forum 
to say, we can't condone this. You can't wipe this off. You can't say, well, we'll deal with the other issues of the Syrian civil war, but we won't hold those who are responsible accountable. That cannot be the U.S. position. And I just urge you to make sure that we, when we say never again, we mean never again. And when we're talking about never again, what's happening in South Sudan? Ethnic cleansing is taking place as we are here. Civilians are losing their life because of this ethnic conflict. The leadership has been unable to, 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 or unwilling to deal with this. In the United Nations, there's a couple proposals that are pending. One, an arms embargo that I would urge you to support. There's strong support in Congress for an arms embargo. The other is to get a peace process actually working while protecting human, human life. We've got to be more aggressive because it is the next ethnic cleansing when we said never again. And the last thing I'm going to say, Mr. Chairman, in my 50 seconds that are remaining, is that it was refreshing to hear your comments about speaking truth to power. I, I think it came out in the context of the president-elect and you're in the National Security Council, which I am convinced that you're going to speak up for what you believe is right. But it's also in dealing with Russia and China and the Security Council resolutions. When you're confronted with the situation where they say, well, you want our help here, then get off of this kick of human rights. I'm convinced that you're not going to get off of this kick of human rights, that you'll continue to speak out for American values, and that we can do more than one thing at a time, and we're not going to be bullied to give up the values that have helped made this country's leadership so critically important around the globe. Once again, thank you for your patience, and thank you for being thank willing to serve. Thank you very much. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Governor, uh, I just want to follow up on Senator Cardin's remarks. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to enter into the record uh, a State Department uh, process of how refugees enter into the United States. Without objection. And I would just simply say that even Director Comey, in testimony before the uh, Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee in reference to Syrian refugees, said, quote, I think we've developed an effective way to touch all of our databases and resources to figure out what we know about these individuals. Uh, and also, uh, in other testimony by Director uh, Rodriguez of the ISIS, uh, I mean, useless, I should say. 20% uh, of all Syrian refugee applications are not granted entry into the United States. So I hope you'll look at that. One thing is what you were given at the time, but I hope you'll look at that because, particularly at the UN, this is a, uh, the question of refugees, whether they be Syrian or not, is particularly a global concern. Uh, I'd like to talk to you uh, a little bit. You, you've answered the sanctions questions a couple times here, and I am left concerned because in your answers, uh, you said sanctions by the United States don't work if they are alone. They have to be multilateral. And of course, we'd like to see multilateral sanctions. But I would call to your attention that the sanctions regime that we built on Iran that ultimately led them to uh, come to the negotiating table, I didn't care for the ultimate result and voted against it, but that led them to the negotiating table was built uh, largely by members of this committee working with the Congress and then getting the administration on board and started off alone and then worked to build an international coalition. So I'd like to just hear from you that sometimes we have to go it alone before we get others to go with us. And yes. if, uh, you talked about leadership various times. Leadership is not always being able to get a coalition from the start. Leadership sometimes takes action 
and then getting others to join you in a coalition. Yes, thank you, Senator, um, for the opportunity to clarify that. I had clarified earlier, sanctions work when they are enforced. And of course, you know, if U.S. were to put sanctions against certain countries, that does work. It just works better when we have coalitions. And, you know, I think for us to do sanctions against, I give that example, against North Korea, that's all well and good. If I can get China to help and really strengthen those sanctions, then we make magic. And so it is always gonna be that we lead and we lead strongly. It is my job to make sure we just aren't the only ones doing sanctions, that we have others with us. Okay, I, I appreciate hearing that clarification and I look forward to you making a lot of magic uh, <laughs> at the end of the day. Uh, but sometimes we have to lead in order to achieve that and sanctions don't always start off with a multilateral uh, unity at the beginning. And because sanctions is a tool of peaceful diplomacy, uh, and I, I think, I don't think it should be used each and every time, I don't think it's the only tool of peaceful diplomacy, but it is a major one. And if you neuter yourself of it, then you've left yourself very little in pursuit of peaceful diplomacy. I wanna go to Iran. UN Resolution 2231 specifically, quote, calls upon Iran not to undertake any activity related to ballistic missiles designed to be capable of delivering nuclear weapons, including launches using such ballistic missile technology, close quote. Since it was adopted at the uh, Security Council, Iran has launched at least 10 ballistic missiles. Uh, earlier this month, a report from the United Nations indicated Iran is likely in violation of these resolutions because of arms shipments to Hezbollah and possibly to rebels in Somalia and Yemen. The UN Security Council arms embargo and ballistic missile sanctions require not just compliance of Iran, but also member states to enforce them. If Iran violates both the ballistic missile sanctions as has been universally recognized and violates the arms embargo, do you plan to use your position at the United Nations to try to create a coalition to hold Iran accountable? Absolutely, and any time that we put sanctions forward, we should follow through on those when there are violations. Now, in doing so, do you also plan to uh, leverage against those? I, I, I wanted to underline the emphasis that yes, Iran is responsible, but so are other member countries not to allow Iran to have the wherewithal to do that in terms of suppliers and other things, will you also seek to pursue them as well? I think that we have to call out anyone that is helping Iran do anything. And I think that the other side of that is we're seeing more and more where Iran is not allowing us access to see if violations are occurring. And that's also gonna be something that we're gonna have to be careful of. Uh, I have another line of questioning, but I'll wait, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Well, there won't be a third round if it's a brief question because of your distinguished service here, then we'll let you do that so we can close this out. Would you rather Coons go first and collect your thoughts? Yeah, that's the, I know that's In order to make it brief, Mr. Chairman, if I can collect my thoughts, I, you know. Okay. And I, before I go to Senator Coons, I, I would make this observation. Um, the, the, I'm all for the pursuit of Russia, uh, potentially being involved in war crimes in Syria, all for it. There's nobody on this committee that would be more for that. I will say that it's been interesting with our witnesses coming in for a new administration. That's been a line of push, but there hasn't been much towards the sitting administration and the sitting UN ambassador relative to calling those out. So it would bring more 
fulsome to me if we were talking about that over the last month also, but I just uh, I, I would, would say. Mr. Chairman, I would take ex personal okay. exception to that because okay. I'll give you the volume of letters and phone calls and public uh, questioning that I have done to not only the Obama administration, but the Bush administration. Um, yeah. as, I said, I, I, as I said previously, we, we generally have disagreements with all administrations as to how helpful Congress can be, uh, but I can assure you that I will am an equal opportunity um, human rights uh, advocate. I I I think you probably are. I just uh, will again stick to my observation, Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Governor, a, a number of us have real concerns about fragile states uh, and about the arc uh, from. Uh, troubled states, states with internal conflict, to really fragile states, to failed states, and um, what the consequences are. Um, typically, a fragile state is one that uh, really has a, a legitimacy problem. The central government doesn't really control the whole country. It, um, it's got um, some insurgencies. Uh, it's got um, real disconnections uh, between its average citizen and, and very weak state capacity, but it's not yet a completely failed state. Um, tell me, why should the average American uh, care about fragile states and, and how do they affect our national security and, and just name a couple states you consider fragile if you would. And then I want to talk about UN platforms to address and deal with fragile states. Well, Americans should always um, be concerned about fragile states and it's because usually when states are fragile they start to erupt in things that can cause threats down the road and I think if you look at South Sudan that's a perfect example that while we have tried to bring peace to that area. You've now got a government that is not wanting that. We're starting to see other issues that are starting to happen in that area. And so it's important for us to work towards peace everywhere. And I think it's important for us to get in front of the situation. We can see before it gets fragile. We can see conflict before it happens. And it's important that I think the UN not acknowledge it once it's too late, that we start to acknowledge it as we see it's happening. Because I think we can get more effectiveness done that way than otherwise. Sort of the archetypal um, fragile state in this era has been Afghanistan, which was a refuge for a terrorist organization, Al-Qaeda, that attacked us, largely because it really wasn't uh, a coherent or effective state. I'd argue that the UN offers some of the strongest tools we have uh, to address fragile states without deploying American troops. Uh, and whether it's UNICEF, which does great work in terms of dealing with uh, human suffering, or it's UNHCR, which deals with refugees, uh, or it's UN peacekeeping. Um, talk to me about how you would imagine advocating for the UN being a more effective a platform for addressing fragile states in the interest of our security and values. I think it's important that we look for results. You know, it should not just be that we have a conversation about how a state is becoming more fragile. It's actually looking at results. And any time we're dealing with any situation that could start to pose a threat, we need to decide what we want to do as a plan and where we want to go and what we will consider success. And I think there need to be measurables along the way to make sure that we're complying with that. And I think that those conversations need to be more detailed in nature as opposed to more high-reaching saying that it is fragile or it may cause problems or it may be an issue. I think we need to get more involved. Let me ask you a closing question, if I might, that Mr. Tillerson and I went back and forth on and several others did as well. Um, some view our values, and I will just give three examples, things that we fight for in the world that, frankly, the Chinese and the Russians don't. Press freedom and transparency, human rights um, and democracy. 
Um, I see those as essential to our interests, not distinct from our interests. In one exchange, Mr. Tillerson suggested that at times, at times, our national security interests have to take a front seat and we maybe have to, with some of our allies and partners, have our advocacy for our values take a back seat. Um, and I'd argue there are other settings where it is our failure to consistently advocate for democracy and human rights and good governance that leads to um, failed states in some cases. What's your view about the value of continuously advocating for democracy and human rights and a free press? Is it in conflict with our interests or does it complement our interests? I think we always talk about the values of America. I think we always talk about why we're the greatest country in the world. And I I think that we always express why we want to share those values with the rest of the world. When it comes to other issues, and I understand we can have more pressing issues that we want to negotiate, I don't think we have to compromise our values to do that. I think these are conversations that can take place at the same time. I think it's very important that countries around the world know what we value, but they also know where we stand. And I think that we can have negotiations, conversations on issues that are at hand without ever um, compromising us talking about our values. I think both can be done at the same time. I think we'll have a, a productive conversation about how we keep those in the right balance going forward and how we invest appropriately in advancing democracy and governance and human rights uh, and a free press at the same time um, that we advance uh, our commercial or security or other interests as well. Thank you, Governor. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Senator Menendez for a succinct question. Mr. Chairman, because the questions are too important, uh, I'm not going to synthesize them. I'll submit them for the record. They involve uh, our participation with the UN Commission on Refugees in Central America. They involve where we're headed and what role the, uh, the governor thinks we can pursue in Venezuela, which is a crisis right here in our own hemisphere. And also, I'd like to hear from the governor something that you're very passionate about that we've worked together on which is a greater role of the United Nations on human trafficking. Right. And because I can't synthesize those and do them honor and worth, uh, I will submit them for the record look forward for I hope will be a, success, a, a, a very explicit responses uh, to them. Uh, I just want to take one more moment to say uh, I appreciate the chairman's comments earlier, but uh, speaking only for myself, there has been no one uh, who has more consistently uh, challenge this administration uh, uh, as part of his own party yeah. uh, on various issues, including the question uh, of actions in the Syrian war crimes. So yeah. uh, it's, it's not new to some of us. Yeah. And I, I think that, uh, uh, especially coming from you, I will say uh, a very accurate statement. And I appreciate the way we've been able to work on the Syrian issue. I know that we all have been very disappointed uh, with the actions that have not been taken, um, and uh, and certainly uh, uh, working together on the Iran resolution, uh, trying to oppose it. So I thank you for that. And uh, I, I would just, it's, it's an observation, there's a new zeal relative to it uh, for lots of reasons, but I think that uh, all of us certainly need to be pushing back against Russia and the violations and international norms that they have put forth. Certainly, uh, what has happened in Aleppo is something that uh, somebody needs to pay a price for. It uh, upsets all of our sensibilities, and I appreciate everyone here on the committee expressing that. Um, Mr. Chairman, I may be a little yeah. sensitive on this, but yeah. as one of those individuals who's been on a list for a long time, not able to go to Russia,
because of my leadership on the Magnitsky Law. This isn't just recent. Yeah. Our, our concern about Russia has been building for a long time, and many of us have been very open about the danger Russia poses to the world order. So I don't think this is something that's new. Just yeah. Well, with that, um, do you have any other statements relative to our nominee? No, but just, again, it's, a, uh, it's been a pleasure uh, hearing your responses. And as I said the first time we met, thank you for being willing to serve your country. And thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. So for the state of play, um, we are going to leave the record open until the close of business tomorrow. Um, I've just talked to the ranking member, and we plan on uh, having the markup on Mr. Tillerson on Monday, Monday afternoon, assuming his questions come in this week and are answered thoroughly. Um, in the event you're able, and it would be quite a feat, I think, I hope that people will keep the questions to questions that really need to be answered. But to the extent you're able to, uh, to answer the questions uh, by the end of the week also, we would attempt to have your markup at the same time we have Mr. Tillerson. I think that, uh, just an observation again, um, I think people have very much respected your instincts here today. And I think the nuance of some of the foreign policy, having been the governor of South Carolina and all of a sudden coming to New York as at the UN Security Council, there's going to be a lot of nuance that you're going to pick up over time and certainly knowledge relative to um, foreign relations issues that you just have not been dealing with. But I think I can tell you as chairman, I feel very good about you going there with the instincts, the drive, uh, the desire for reform that uh, you've expressed here. I think you've impressed everybody in the individual meetings that you've had. Uh, I'm certain that you're going to be confirmed overwhelmingly, and uh, thank you for your desire to serve our country at this time in this important capacity. And with that... What's the uh, date for the questions for the record? When is it open till? Close of business tomorrow. And I would respectfully ask that I don't need 1,023 of them. I am um, hoping that we don't have quite that many. We'll try to keep it under 1,000. <laughs> well, you remember, uh, you remember how the General Assembly or legislature was in South Carolina. I they do They generally did that. not listen to you, and I doubt no. that will be heated. I uh, didn't expect you to listen now, yeah, but I thought at least I could try. But uh, I do hope that uh, people ask questions that truly need to be answered, and I appreciate your sentiment there. And I look and forward to answering them. The meeting is adjourned. Thank, Thank you very much.